Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. I am your host, Austin, here, as usual, and with me, I have my good friend, Bill. How's it going, Bill? Uh, It's going pretty well. I am getting out of a casino while it's lighting up like I'm winning a jackpot on a pinball table. Um, I certainly hope that the money you've stolen is not counterfeit. That would be really disappointing. Uh, let's hope so. I, I need that money badly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I've also got another good buddy with me. It is Mr. Tobias. How's it going, Tobias? It's going pretty well. Uh, I'm currently involved in a car chase along the uh, winding roads of Italy. And I don't know how I'm recording from there, but it's it's working. Yeah, it sounds like a really quiet car chase. It's not. I don't even hear any sounds of the car or the uh, bad guys shooting at you or anything like that. Well, you know, it, it's Italy. It's Europe. It's a very pastoral Miyazaki-esque scene, so... Very, very peaceful. I, I just thought your pop filter was that good. <laughs> oh, he could be driving like an electric car, like a Tesla or something. There you go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And with us is a extremely special guest, a Mr. Daryl Surratt. How's it going, Daryl? Hey, guys. Glad to be on the show with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Uh, for those that are not aware of your illustriousness, can you sort of describe who you are as a person and a physical entity on this planet Earth? Sure, I can go ahead and do that. Uh, for As it pertains to the interest level of the people listening to this show, I am a producer and co-host of the Anime World Order podcast. I've been doing that since 2006 or thereabouts. I am also a Longtime anime convention attendee, panelist, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. Never volunteer. That's the lesson I always learned, um, <laughs> you know, from not doing anything. Uh, in addition, I'm a writer for Otaku USA magazine. Uh, I've been writing since issue one, and we're, we're still kicking, you know, after about 11 plus years. And lately, within the last, you know, a couple of years, I also am an occasional contributor to the Anime News Network. Cool. And uh, what sort of stuff have you guys been up to at, uh, at AWO lately? Well, uh, we just recorded an episode with um, a special guest of our own, so to speak. Uh, it's our yearly trivia episode, which is quite uh, popular. Even though Gerald thinks it's not popular, he doesn't have uh, <laughs> access to the metrics. So uh, I can tell you that that one was fairly uh it's gonna be pretty fun good thing to listen to for those of you who have like a very long drive to your relatives and need something to break up that uh silence uh we also just released a new episode uh, a couple weeks ago with mike tool also from the internet uh that one was about uh gundam reconquista in g which uh, we threatened to review uh, many months ago <laughs> uh, after the last one uh that we did uh, involving Yoshiki Tomino and questionable narrative choices. And so we are back at it again, you know, pretty scary. We listed on Halloween, so it's a Halloween-themed episode. Pretty scary <laughs> stuff. So that's basically what's been going on over on our podcast side, over at www.animeworldorder.com. So that's what you're doing with uh, AWO, but uh, what articles have you got working on uh, on the magazine? So as we speak right now, the next issue of the magazine is being put together. So I probably can't talk about it just yet on account that I don't fully know exactly what my assignments are going to be. I'm not Mm. like keeping it a secret or anything. I just don't actually know. So it's good that we're doing the recording now because in a day or two, I'm going to have a bunch of things that are due in in a fairly short span of time. Uh, as far as writing of mine that people can read right now, the, um, 
we have like a special called Anime USA. Like maybe there's four issues a year of that. Right. Those come out. The latest one is available. It's on newsstands right now. We also put up select issues, um, select articles of it on the website at otakuusamagazine.com. So you can go and check that out as well. And as far as the Anime News Network, the latest thing that I wrote a review of was for the latest PlayStation 4 Fist of the North Star game, Fist of the North Star Lost Paradise, which is the Fist of the North Star game as made by the makers of the Yakuza series. Ooh, yeah, I've been hearing really good uh, press about that. I've been wanting to play that. It's, uh, it's very good. I mean, you can go ahead and read my article. It's up there. But basically, it is literally like everyone who makes Yakuza, including like the voice cast of Yakuza, is present just doing Fist of the North Star this time. And all the ridiculous, wacky side quests and stuff like that and the <laughs> localization hijinks that you've come to love out of Yakuza are, are here and for Fist of the North Star. Um, I will say that it's not as accessible as I would like it to be because they kind of market it as, hey, Yakuza fans, here's Fist of the North Star, when really it's, hey, Fist of the North Star fans, here's Yakuza. doesn't mean it's total (laughs) nonsense because there's a certain degree of nonsense to be expected from playing Yakuza in the first place because there may be a variety of guest celebrities and such that you may encounter that the average player here may not know who these people are. They're just some weird person who pops up and then you get into a fist fight. Um, similar levels of logic are on display in, in Lost Paradise. Uh, I do highly recommend it to everyone who's a fan of Yakuza, and especially to everyone who's a fan of Fist of the North Star. Is there enough head exploding to your liking? There is even more head exploding than there is in the Japanese version, because the Japanese have laws. Uh, I mean, their video game reviews is like you're not allowed to have like decapitations and stuff like that in their games. So our version of it you actually get to see like the people explode in the japanese version they kind of have to do like what they did on the tv show where they sort of like turn to silhouette and then you see like a you know black shadow explode but isn't isn't that quite the opposite in the sense that uh wasn't there something where we couldn't see the main character die so every time you die in the game it just fades to black that's fake. That is uh, a post okay. that Dave Cabrera made, which I immediately uh, corrected him on. But that post that he made got several thousands of retweets and shares because it sounded like it could be true. But it's easily demonstrable as false. Uh, and the retraction, nobody reshared that. That's how it goes. Ain't that just the way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of video games and stuff, uh, Bill, you've been playing anything lately? Um, mostly a small little indie game called Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I don't know. I, maybe you guys should check it out. It's, it's like, it could be the next Undertale. <laughs> <laughs> My biggest objection to Rockstar Games is this control scheme where you have to continually mash a button to run at uh. a reasonable speed. Don't, don't get me started on the control steam because it's 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 like a evil monkey's paw with rockstar games where we have this really cool world and really developed characters but we have a very old control scheme that seems like it's out from 10 it's old from 10 years ago but so, that was so never just, even a thing in vice city and stuff like that they added it added it later just to be annoying people are gonna play it anyway well, yeah, of course people are playing it anyway. And they said, like, what, in eight, nine days, it already outsold the first Red Dead Redemption, which sold 17 million copies over its lifetime. Man. 
something like that. Um, like it's it's not at GTA Five sales levels yet, but <laughs> uh, with all Rockstar games, I, they're making their money back. <laughs> oh yeah, and then they're gonna launch the multiplayer, which is it's a mystery to me who is playing GTA Five in such massive numbers and quantities that they're making so much money off of GTA Five years later to this day, thanks to the multiplayer of it. I, yeah, I think it's the same people who buy Madden and FIFA and Call of Duty every year. It's just, it's it's one of those, it's big among the masses, but it's among, I guess, more niche fans of RPGs. Or, uh, My understanding is like that it. those games are just rife with cheating, like GTA I'm talking about, such that a lot of it is people buying multiple accounts over and over again. I don't know the background of it. I just know like oh. when I see the billions of dollars that they made off of GTA 5 and people playing it online, I'm like, I don't know a single person who plays GTA 5 online. And Red Dead Redemption 2, when the online mode starts, I guarantee you I will not be touching it. No, I won't be touching it either. I'll be looking at it as a curiosity, but I'll just be happy in my single player where I won't have to be dealing with a number of a-holes online. I don't and microtransaction hell, don't forget that. Oh yeah, with uh, their weird mini expansion things. But. I think they're going to do a more more of a zombie thing like they did last time. I actually thought that was clever, but at the time it wasn't the default thing to do in every single game, and at least that was a single player thing. So, yeah, I, I have almost no familiarity with Rockstar games in general, so I I'm just really evaluating by what I see on the shelves and I thought, "Oh, so they're doing zombies, so it's got to be like a multiplayer thing, right?" But uh that's kind of interesting <laughs> that it was like a story mode thing, I guess. Yeah, it's like the Red Dead 2 is a prequel to the first Red Dead Redemption, so if you played that, you'll you probably have some investment cuz John Marsden is a recurring character and because it's on the new systems it's it's a gorgeous looking game and i think unlike G, the, for me the gta games which can get very tiresome because it's very cultural like reference heavy because it's a different time period that's what makes me interested in red dead and why i also liked bully back in the day and they are making a bully too they keep saying that's happening but i don't believe them because they haven't given a release date, they haven't given us a screenshot. Not like nothing. Like I think the composer from the first bully said, like we're working on it, but maybe that was like from five years ago. So I'll it's believe it when I see. To, it. Similar to about every every two thir- two thirds of everything that Guillermo del Toro has announced. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, I would love uh, to see his Haunted Mansion movie. Uh, that would be amazing. But I feel like a lot of those ideas he just used in Crimson Peak anyway. But I mean, if it's for a Haunted Mansion movie, I would I would totally be down for him sort of rehashing some other things and maybe, maybe making he, it more fun. Maybe if he does the Haunted Mansion movie, he can direct it and do all the production design, but hire someone else to do the writing because Crimson Peak's script was not very interesting. Yeah... Anyway, Tobias, have you been watching anything or playing any video games? I'm pretty much just continuing to keep up uh, on my seasonal anime stuff. I'm still watching Gridman. I just watched the Mysteries episode right before we started the podcast. Uh, it's finally moving into like the world bit, world building kind of background stuff that we all kind of assumed what was happening. Uh, there was an Inferno Cop joke, very quick Inferno Cop joke, uh, a la Trigger. Uh, I started watching the uh, new Guda Guda thing, uh, Himote House, 
which uh, I don't think is quite as funny as there is as Goody Goody Fairies, but is still pretty enjoyable, I think. And uh, of course, Zombie Line Saga still is pretty funny. Yeah, I'm I'm about a week behind on all my shows, but I'm I'm a, I'm about watching the same thing, watching Gridman, watching Zombieland Saga, watching JoJo's. So it's all pretty good. Um, typically, I don't keep up with seasonal anime very well, but this year I've been doing, or this season I've been doing better than better than expected. But uh, Daryl, you're a you're a Toku fan, so have you been have you checked out Gridman yet? I mean, I'm not really a diehard tokusatsu fan like how other people I know are. I'm very mm-hmm. very informal. I am watching Gridman though the fact that like there are entire audiences of people who are appreciating that show on an entirely other level than me to be yeah. able to spot like all the transformers references that are in that um, oh yeah you know there's a lot in there I, some of it's really obvious and i feel like really stupid for not realizing oh that's the matrix of leadership on her notebook or something like that like I didn't notice like these characters are kind of humanized versions of the Transformers, like these some of these background characters. Then for people who are fans of the original Gridman, which is fan sub, you can watch it that way rather than the uh, Americanized version where they get the SSSS from. You know, there are hints of like, hey, this is in the same continuity as that original show uh, that are just starting to come out within the last episode or so. Yeah. People were kind of unsure wow. at first, like, oh, is this a reboot? Is this a sequel? Like, what is going on here? And then, you know, it started to be a little more clear. But I never really watched, like, growing up, the, the rip-off version of it. Um, or, you know, within the last few years when it got fan-subbed, went back and watched uh, Gridman, the original show. But... You know, I am following people who are heavily invested in this stuff, who are freaking out each episode with like, oh, there's the cool reference for that. Much like how when I was watching Kill a Kill, I could see, ah, there's the old anime reference there. Mm. So mm-hmm. people are getting that sort of stuff out of Gridman that is, if you don't know it, it doesn't matter to your enjoyment of the show. But if you do get it, it's like, aha, they're working on this other level here. And that's how I think the best use of referential type things is, as opposed to your Ready Player Ones of the world. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, what do you I started, mean you've never seen The Shining? <laughs> no, I, I started watching uh, uh, the anime with no experience to the original at all. Didn't really think much of it. Like you said, it's not really necessary. But I've been watching the original just kind of you know, on breaks at work and whatnot. And being able to sort of sync those together and see the little the references like the special hot dog they mentioned in episode one. And like the sound spirits they just mentioned here in the last one. is It's, it's, it's a pretty cool tie-in, but not necessary to the enjoyment of it, for sure. So I've not been playing a whole 
swath of video games myself, other than getting very into Dark Souls Remastered, um, because I came into the Souls series a little bit late, uh, because my first Souls game was Bloodborne, and then I played Dark Souls 3 after that and thought, man, I just really wish I could play this game a lot faster, because I enjoyed Bloodborne so much. Um, but going back to playing uh, Dark Souls Remastered on the Switch, um, which I got it for the Switch for basically the sole purpose of I could play it like on the go. Um, I probably wouldn't have bought it if it wasn't on the Switch, but I've been jo enjoying that a lot and getting more used to the Dark Souls mechanics as opposed to the Bloodborne mechanics. Um, and it's it's been a lot of fun. It's it's kind of weird because it's not a proper remaster per se. It's more just like an upscale, so it doesn't look as excellent as like Bloodborne or Dark Souls 3 do um, but I hear it does look better on the PS4 version um, but but that's been a lot of fun I just it's it's gotten a lot more fun because I found a really easy way to grind for souls so that's <laughs> that always makes the uh, the uh, frustrations a little bit more easy to deal with but um Daryl isn't your dad a big souls fan yeah my dad is in his mid 60s and you know is only started playing video games for the first time a few years ago. And yeah, he plays all the Dark Souls games. He plays <laughs> um, all of them. He's got like, uh, you know, thousands of hours like in uh, each one, you know, basically. And he's wow. really big into Neo. Uh, he's got like over 1750 hours in Neo, for example. And oh um, so the, the notion of gamers everywhere saying that Dark Souls is like super hard and stuff. My dad can't reliably remember which button is X and which button is circle. Okay. <laughs> wow. But these are games that are like even Neo, which, you know, the Dark Souls nerds say is too hard. Neo is the only one of those types of games I've ever played, which I, I like that one. Um, but they are not difficult in the way that like, you know, uh, a shooter or a fighting game is difficult. They're more memorization based. Like my dad yeah. at his age, like if you put anything that requires a platforming section, he can't do it. Like by far the hardest thing for him in dark souls one is the stupid, uh, thing where you walk the planks and there's like the pendulums, uh, swinging back and forth and things that knock mm -hmm. you off. Like that's like, but you don't have to jump at least you just have to, yeah. to walk at the right time or roll at the right time. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a testament to basically those are games about patience. They're not difficult games such that everywhere gamers say like, oh, this is the dark souls of this, as if to suggest it's the, the most <laughs> difficult thing you could possibly create. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I, I really don't like that that's been such an influence. Like independent game creators have taken the wrong lesson from Dark Souls as a, a general rule. Um, where they say, oh, it's difficult. That means it's like Dark Souls. It's like, no, Dark Souls is a specific kind of, of quote difficulty that can be overcome just through effort as opposed to grinding as opposed to get good which you know um there's just a horrible culture of dark souls that my dad has nothing to do with so the point where he says like oh, all these streamers who say that neo is too hard they're all full of it all these people who think that dark souls 2 sucks like they don't know what they're talking about like so you know i i think it's great that he at least has something and then next year he's got you know, Sekiro and then that other one and then uh, Neo 2, like there's uh, the floodgates are opened for that style of game. You do have a point. It's like the Dark Souls games, they have they may have a learning curve if you're not used to that particular gameplay style. But like the more you play it, just if you have patience for it, they it just gets easier as you play it. Just 
kind of like anything in that regard. So it's not like impossible to beat, and that's sort of like the way that the game is structured. I mean, the game is structured to be able to be played. Um, you just have to have patience with it, like you said. Right. Like, again, my dad in his mid-60s can't parry to save his life, but he can beat these games. And he can do it right. on like New Game Plus, New Game Plus, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Wow. <laughs> so, Daryl, we've heard from stuff you've been doing on like the more work end stuff, but have you been playing or watching anything for fun? Sure. I mean, obviously, there's a whole new season. There's always a whole new season of stuff. So I'm mostly watching uh, JoJo's, Gridman, a couple other things. Uh, Skullface bookseller Honda-san, uh, very nice. important. Um, <laughs> more than just a special Yaoi book meme that uh, goes around. It's uh, you know cut into the core each week. Uh, in terms of video games, there's like a balance you have to strike between playing games that go on forever and playing single player games that are completable. And mm-hmm. so even though I just bought like Hitman 2, like the fancy edition, I'm not going to have time to start it because I'm trying to play through Lost Paradise, which can be played through start to finish and beaten. And then you have other games that, you know, you can play forever, such as Overwatch or Vermintide or, you know, what have you mm-hmm. um, that I also, you know, and pl- I try not to play as much of them as I should. But of course, they set it up. So it's like, oh, there's a limited time event or there's new characters coming out. Etc. Etc. And if you're not careful, those games will steal your soul. So you know, yes. I have to try to, you know, maintain like the balance between one and the other. Uh, but the backlog is never ending. True that. So you, your best bet is you pick one game and then you have to like put Red Dead to the side. You got to put Hitman to the side. You got to put all these like big major things because it's like, nope, I'm gonna play through this one thing. Because otherwise, you just like play a thing. And then a week or two later, another thing comes out and it's like, oh, put this to the side and come back to it. No, you won't stick with the thing you're you're on, even if it is not (laughs) the zeitgeist thing. And that is why it took me two and a half years to beat Final Fantasy 15. Final Fantasy 15 was probably not a game I would have spent two and a half years devoting myself to. <laughs> well, not two and a half years straight by any means, but because I kept having to break and play other things. I say have to, but I chose to. I feel your pain with uh, the games as a service. I'm not a big Overwatch player, but I'm a big Hearthstone player, so I I get into the groove of new expansions out, new cards, gotta play it. And when I could be playing really interesting single player games <laughs> like Hitman 2 or are finishing up Red Dead 2, but nope, new expansion, gotta play it. We did want to remind folks that we are having a giveaway, and we're very excited to do that because courtesy of Mr. Bill Foreman, uh, we announced this back in our Memories episodes, and if you didn't listen to that, you can go back and listen to that um, as well. That would be wonderful. Um, But Bill is giving away a free, brand new copy of The Rose of Versailles Volume 1, which is now out of print, unfortunately. Um, But Bill has decided to grab a copy of that and give it away totally for free at the cost of only one iTunes review. Uh, We would love for you guys to pop over to our iTunes page and leave us a review. And it has to be five stars because we're just going to be like that. Um, (laughs) 
And if you go and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and then pop over to our Facebook community and join us over there, that will be the only way that you will know if you have won or not. So if you don't have a Facebook page, uh, you are a better person than I am, but you also won't be able to know if you have won or not. So, And that's very important to know if you have won because you would not want to win a copy of it and then not get a chance to have it. Uh, so if you guys would like to have a complimentary copy of The Rose of Versailles Volume 1, which is how many episodes, Bill? 20-something? 25 or 26. Cool. Um, yes, so it'd be a wonderful deal, and you definitely don't want to miss out on it. Um, and that um, that contest will end exactly one month from whatever the update, the upload date was for the Memories episode. Uh, so keep keep that in mind. Um, but with that being said, I guess we can move into our review. Uh, I do have tackling... a question about that release of Rose of Versailles, just purely for sure. ego purposes. Is the pull quote on the back uh, from me still on the packaging for the Thin Pack release? Um, ooh. They may have changed it, but the initial release of Rose of Versailles, it had a quote from me on the back as the endorsement. Daryl is correct. His pull quote is on the back of the first volume. <laughs> Bill, but, would you like to read it for us? Yes, in dramatic fashion. I would love to. Um, the Rose of Versailles is the, in exclamation point, all caps, gold standard of shoujo anime, which all anime fans must see. Recommended. Daryl Surratt, Otaka USA Magazine. I stand by that. Okay, good. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> folks and we're back and we're going to be talking about the castle of Cagliostro Um, but before that I just want to let everybody know about the many ways that you can connect with the third impact anime podcast or the panels that we tend to do at conventions on the internet Uh, you can find us most easily over at facebook.com slash third impact anime you can also follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash ti underscore anime You can also find our website where we put up all of our show notes and interesting articles about seasonal anime or non-seasonal anime or various convention stuff. That's all up on the Third Impact Anime website, which is thirdimpactanime.wordpress.com. And uh, Daryl, where can people find uh, AWO and Otaku USA stuff? Our website is www.animeworldorder.com. And Otaku USA can be found at www.otakuusamagazine.com. Cool, cool. All right. Well, Bill, you have written out a nice little plot synopsis about the Castle of Cagliostro. So would you do the honors of reading that for us? Sure. I would love to. Okay. Lupin and Jigen have just robbed a big-time casino. Basking in their big score, Lupin realizes their loot is fake. In reaction, Lupin and Jigen head to Cagliostro, home of the legendary Goat Bills, which create perfect counterfeits 
Throughout history, goat bill, the goat bills were instruments in world events from funding the armies of Napoleon to the stock crash of 1929. Many spies and government agencies have come to Cagliostro to find the goat bills, never to be seen again. Even Lupin has tried and failed to get the goat bills. Now he will try again, but this time Lupin faces new challenges and mysteries. From a mysterious runaway bride with a past connection to Lupin, to the lecherous Count of Cagliostro trying to find the mysterious hidden, for hidden uh, fortune hidden by the Cagliostro family, Lupin must once again break into the castle of Cagliostro. Will he fail once again? Or come away with riches. So, question for you, Bill. I noticed you, you mentioned goat bills repeatedly. Which version of the film did you watch? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the manga uh, dub version, and I have attachment to the manga dub, so that's why I put goat bills in there. And the other one, what do they what do they call them in the streamlined dub? So, in the streamlined dub, because uh, this film has been dubbed into English multiple times, just for mm -hmm. uh, context's sake. Uh, but the streamlined dub, they didn't say um, the goat bills or anything like that. They just say, oh, they're counterfeit. Or they'd sometimes they would say, um, you know, uh, things made by Goto. Because, you know, in the Japanese, mm -hmm. they say, you know, Goto bills. And so streamlined dub, it's like, oh, it must mean this guy's name is Goto. Uh, even though it's <laughs> like there's a picture of goats everywhere in the film. But uh, in fact... In the latest edition of the film, which is the Discotheque Blu-ray, which I must say, before we just underway ground rule, that is the definitive edition of the Castle of Cagliostro to get, is the Discotheque oh, yeah. Media oh, release yeah. of it. And if you are have an attachment to the manga dub, the streamlined dub, they're on there. If you want the other translation, they're on there. You know, you get to pick. But the latest translation, like the most accurate, would be to say they're gothic bills. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Because uh, I actually thought the dub, when they were said they were reading like the ancient text of it, that they said it was um, in Capron or something like that, which um, is a old, uh, it's, it's a term for goats, right? It's the, the genus, I think, not the species. Mm -hmm. So I've, uh, I've asked Bill to do this multiple times with our other Lupin the Third reviews. Um, but I won't ask him to do that this time, but in case other folks uh, are not as familiar with Lupin the Third or haven't listened to our other review episodes, Daryl, do you think you could give us the very, very stripped down sort of uh, idea of like what is the Lupin the Third franchise, like at its base level? Sure, I think I can do that. I Just as a disclaimer, I have done commentary tracks for some of the discotheque Lupin the Third releases uh, that are out there, so I, I can probably just do this off the top of my head without any uh, preparation, because that's how I do things. Uh, Lupin the <laughs> Third is sort of a unauthorized sort of ripoff of the classic uh, French character by Maurice LeBlanc called Arsène Lupin, the gentleman thief. Uh, Arsène Lupin was a character who would famously send a calling card to his uh, victim saying, hey, I'm going to steal this from you on so-and-so time. Uh, there are a series of novels. This character is now in the public domain. In the when Lupin the Third was created in Japan, uh, without the knowledge of the LeBlanc estate, uh, it was not in the public domain. So anyway, Lupin the Third is the world's greatest thief, and so he is accompanied by typically by uh, another gentleman named uh, Jigen Daisuke, who is an expert sharpshooter, uh, and with him as well is Ishikawa Goemon the Thirteenth. 
a supposed descendant of the legendary sort of Robin Hood figure in Japan, Ishikawa Goemon, um, who is a samurai who has a sword that can cut through basically anything. Then there is the uh, femme fatale, uh, sometimes friend, sometimes foe, Fujiko Mine, so named because she's got incredibly large breasts. And chasing them all is the Interpol detective, Inspector Zenigata. And so each episode, each film, each what have you, they are typically, you know, in search of some other treasure or what have you, uh, pulling some other caper. And so over 50 years now, they've been at it. Uh, and there's no sign of stopping. Yep. Even yeah. as recently as this year, we got another Lupin the Third TV show. Which was really good. Mm-hmm. Lupin and the Silk Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lupin meets the modern day. Mm-hmm. Well, right. yeah, that's the thing. Uh, and we, we can get into this later. But, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about Lupin the Third as a character, you know, created so long ago... He's in some ways tied to the, the 60s, 70s, in, in, in a way very much like, say, James Bond. In mm-hmm. fact, you know, Lupin III, James Bond, Golgo 13, all these sort of characters kind of, you know, were cross-pollinating, you know, one another. And so there have to be multiple efforts to bring these characters into the modern era. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, even when you do so, there are certain things that sort of remain no matter what that are kind of just fundamentally like anachronistic like for example Lupin's jacket his clothes are are very much you know nobody wears this anymore but now it's just Lupin the third signature blazer like you can't not have him wear it you can maybe change the color of it so you know hey something new's afoot so similarly yeah when you say the Silk Road the latest season of Lupin the third is all about well you know, using the blockchain and, you know, dealing with internet anonymity and people trying to troll you and, you know, taking social advantage media. of yeah, social media engineering and, you know, all the sorts of theft you can get away with through that because, as Lupin says, uh, everything is still down to locks and keys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so does that mean very- in part six that the main villain is going to be Elon Musk? <laughs> So uh, there is an interesting connection back to uh, back to the Arsene Lupin novels that this movie has, and that is the uh, character and the name and the moniker of Cagliostro, uh, because Cagliostro as a person is based on a, a real person that lived back in the 1700s who is this sort of like strange... Um, magic dude or whatever it's that's a very very base level description of that he's like just a a quirky guy that would do like magic things there's some not quite like a wizard but more of like a magician and um, that sort of historical character evolved into a uh, recurring um, character in the Arsene Lupin novels that sort of as my understanding was a um, the character was embodied again by another like descendant of Cagliostro I, I and it was a, a girl it's my as my recollection uh, uh, states from what I read um, but uh, she was a recurring character in the Arsene Lupin novels and I'm sure that that probably had some sort of influence on the decision to go with this like Cagliostro theming direction for this for this film from those original novels even though as far as my reading is concerned, it didn't really seem like there was that much connective tissue, but more of just like an inspirational sort of thing. Hmm. Um, so going back to the um, 
staff here on the anime uh, itself. So this film uh, was released in December of 1979. It is the second Lupin the Third movie, uh, second to Mystery of Mamo that we reviewed back earlier this year. Um, it was made in a very short seven and a half months from the project's original undertaking with only about five months of actual production time. Uh, the cast of Cagliostro is Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli's uh, first featured directorial debut. Uh, he worked as a screenwriter and a designer and a storyboarder all in this film, as well as being a director. Uh, but before this, he had directed a number of the uh, episodes of the Lupin III TV series. As I think he worked on both part one and part two, if my memory uh, served me correctly. That is correct. Though, though, if you want to get really like pedantic and weird about it, I'm not sure if he worked on the episode uh, on the series two episodes uh, until mm -hmm. after this film, because, like you said, with the production of it, um, the second series ran about 152 episodes, and so I don't think those final episodes came out until after the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because those those episodes were in the hundreds. I believe. Well, he, did, he basically did the very last episode and an episode close to the last episode. Okay. Uh, and those okay. episodes were the only, for many years, the only two episodes of the TV series that were available in the United States, dub only. Um, mm -hmm. So that and Castle of Cagliostro was all the loop on the third we had for some time. And then mm -hmm. the floodgates eventually opened. Right. Mm -hmm. So the screenplay was also written by an individual named Haruya Yamazaki. Uh, who was a scriptwriter on Kunikuman, Space Adventure Cobra, both the movie and some of the TV series, and was a screenplay writer on TMS's uh, Treasure Island, which was a very early discotheque release that is unfortunately out of print. Um, and this was the only Lupin the Third thing that he ever worked on. Um, so the animation director and the co-character designer is Yasuo Otsuka, who there is a, a really good interview with up on the uh, on that discotheque Blu-ray. Uh, he worked on many other Lupin the Third works. He was the animation director for the first Lupin the Third TV series. He also directed The Mystery of Mamo and worked on Napoleon's Dictionary, The Fuma Conspiracy that we also talked about a few episodes ago, and a couple more of the specials and the TV series. Uh, that's putting it lightly for who Yasuo Otsuka is, but we'll keep going. Well, I mean, if you would like to elaborate well, on well, that, because sure, I'm, mean, not, I'm not as familiar with him. Okay, well, um, I... This, this year, um, Isao Takahata passed away, uh, mm -hmm. and so I ended up doing, a, you know, looking back on the life of Isao Takahata, um, you know, who was Miyazaki's, um, you know, longtime collaborator. Effectively, Isao Takahata, you know, was the guy who kind of brought Miyazaki into the fold, so to speak, and then Otsuka was sort of their, like, sort of mentor as it were. Mm, oh, and so wow. like uh, at Toei, uh, it was Otsuka who pushed Rataka Hara to be the director, to let this guy direct a movie. And then eventually when Otsuka left, he said, hey, why don't you guys come with me? And you know, so on and so forth. And so uh, he, he stuck around uh, for quite a while. He's still around, he's still alive. Um, you know, still at Telecom uh, Animation Film, which is the, I believe the studio, because Studio Ghibli didn't exist uh, at this time. Uh, when mm -hmm. Castle of Cagliostro was made. Um, it's a Toho film. Uh, Ghibli didn't exist until the, the mid-80s after uh, Takahata uh, spent a whole bunch of money and they had to figure out, what do we do to get out of the hole? We'll pound a studio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, Yasuo Otsuka has a, a huge um, wealth of experience and uh, things that are injected into 
both the lifeblood of Miyazaki and Takahata in various ways. This is um, one of those things where I don't want to bog this whole podcast down just on this point. But yeah, I mean, um, as far as like a, a, a cornerstone of, you know, making Miyazaki Miyazaki and so to speak and what like br- brings the magic, uh, Otsuka is a big part of it. Hmm. And he did have uh, some interesting things to say about Miyazaki in that interview. He, he Basically, it summed up as like, yeah, Miyazaki, he's a weird guy. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the extent of it. But yeah, I, he, he went into a little bit more details as to why. But that's kind of the crux of what he was trying to say. I, I also liked how Miyazaki got on him of just like, why do you keep doing Lupin stuff? You need to expand, keep doing more. <laughs> and he's like, well, why don't you... You've done so much. You can stop. And he's like, no, I can't stop. <laughs> so that uh, that interview was very entertaining. And I got to think that that interview was probably at least 10 years old. I could be wrong on that, but it looked a little bit older. And that was and, you know, Miyazaki still can't stop, apparently, because we've got another movie of his coming well, out. Of course at some he point. can. He said he was going to stop. And then he realized another person made a movie that was better than his movie. And he's like, I can't <laughs> let it end like this. I got to come back. One last job. <laughs> he's still going to do that even after he's passed away. He's just going to rise from the grave and be like, I have to make another movie. All right. So the art director is also another notable uh, member of the staff here. It's uh, Shichiro Kobayashi. Uh, we talked about him at length in the Fuma Conspiracy episode, but he is a very iconic uh, background painter and designer. He worked on the early on the uh, 90s Berserk series, Space Adventure Cobra, the movie. He worked on Revolutionary Girl Lutena, Gogo 13, the movie, which I know is one of Daryl's favorites, and Angel's Egg. And all of them have a very distinctive, very detailed, very beautiful painterly art style to their art direction so his stuff is very very recognizable i don't have a cast breakdown for this because there was because i i if if i recall correctly it's it's basically the the main lupon cast yeah like, as from the tv series yeah everybody reprises their roles um mm-hmm. you know it wasn't until the fuma conspiracy where uh as a cost-cutting measure they said oh we'll change out the the voice cast and you know that led to a rift between yasu yamada and you know monkey punch from that point on even though they eventually Mm -hmm. brought them all back but yeah it's it's everybody they play those roles till the day they die i mean kiyoshi kobayashi is still jigen you know now um you know everyone else is you know either dying out or being replaced uh, as it were. So eventually, mm-hmm. you know, someone's going to have to, you know, replace him and um, c- could be anybody. But yeah, the point is, is that uh, everyone came back. The only new characters are basically people who are introduced just for this film, um, which are, you know, for, as you may guess, the Count Cagliostro, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Lady Clarice, who I believe this might have been her debut role, Sumi Shimamoto, uh, best known for being the voice of Nausicaa. Uh, later Miyazaki uh, heroine. Oh. Um, she's also in Maze Honey Koku and stuff like that. She was in that last episode that Hayao Miyazaki did. And so Farewell Lovely Lupin was 1980. Like So yeah, that last episode of Lupin the Third Series 2. Um, so yeah, I think, this, I think this may very well be your very first role. And so uh, she's just been in a ton of stuff over the years. But yeah, those are the things that I mainly remember her for. So was was that final episode? Was that the one that has the robot from Castle in the Sky and the character that is basically Nausicaa? That's correct. That is the final episode right. of Lupin. Yeah, and it, it, it's funny because I was I I didn't I have 
did not watch the Japanese version because I had seen the manga entertainment version, but not the streamlined dub. So that this time around, I watched the streamlined version. Um, so I did not know that 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 she had that connection to Nausicaa. But like, because it had been many years, or not many, but a couple years since I had seen Cagliostro, and just looking at Clarice now, I was thinking, wow, she looks a lot like Nausicaa. So it's it's funny that she was actually voiced by the same person. Um, like almost three times in that uh, in that one-off episode, and in Nausicaa, and in Cagliostro. So that's that's interesting how that worked out. I'm sure it was all probably quite intentional. Yeah, Miyazaki has cast her a few times uh, throughout the years. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, since Daryl, you would probably be the first because you are the the uh, the elder of the group uh, here. Uh, so for you, how did you first discover this particular film, or just Lupin in general? Well, this basically uh, is, was, and will forever be the single most famous Lupin the Third work of all. I think it's just one of those things that is the result of it being, one, primarily in print in the United States, but two, it's a thing that it's effectively the standard bearer for all things Lupin the Third, for better or for worse, because once this came out, and when it did come out, it was not a success at first in Japan. It was actually kind of a flop. And it wasn't until years later that people realized, hey, wait a second, this is a masterpiece. Uh, and so then when they brought back Lupin the Third in the 90s and then on, they used this film specifically as like, this is the template for how Lupin the Third must be. If, if Cagliostro did it, we got to do something like that. And so Lupin the Third kind of became this sort of family entertainment, you know, yearly special kind of thing for many many decades uh thereafter as for how i discovered it uh it was the streamline uh version and then i sent away for a fan sub of the like in the japanese because streamline pictures in the 1990s they did not release anime in japanese with english subtitles you did not get that option they released everything they released they released dub only with the exception of like akira which had like a very questionable uh, subtitle job on it. And so I saw that, and then I saw what they released as, quote, Loop on the Third's Greatest Capers, which were the two Miyazaki episodes. Uh, so that was basically how I first saw Loop on the Third. I mean, I think my introduction to the character as a concept might have been like in the back pages or like the import section of electronic gaming monthly, which is a print magazine about video games in the early nineties. There was like maybe a blurb about loop on the third, like a, a video game or something like that with like a still shot. Cause it's like a CD, you know, FMV sort of whatever sort of thing. Not like, um, the laser disc games in the arcade. Those I'd only heard about years later. I never ever saw the machine, um, growing up as a kid. Those games are expensive. So, yeah, I mean, this was it. This was my introduction to it. And so then afterwards, everyone's like, oh, wow, loop on the third. Where can I get more? And Anime Ego then said, OK, well, we'll release the Fuma Conspiracy, which you guys just reviewed in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. And that's the only other one that's kind of like Cagliostro because Telecom Animation Film did the animation for it. And they kept most of the same staff as Cagliostro, with the exception of Miyazaki and a few other people. And so it was that. I didn't actually, even though Streamline released it, I didn't actually watch uh, Mystery of Mamo, a.k.a. Secret of Mamo, until well afterwards. And so the idea of like, oh, this is what Lupin is, if you def use it like defined by Cagliostro and Fuma Conspiracy, 
Uh, and then you watch all the other Lupin. It's like, there's no other Lupin the third. That's like this movie or <laughs> like, Oh, those Miyazaki yeah. episodes. Like those are like the only ones where Lupin is like that. And then everything else is either uh, a sharp deviation from that, or it's influenced by this. Like, Oh, we have, we have to pay, pay respect to this because this is the masterpiece. And so Lupin mm-hmm. must, you know, incorporate these elements. So whenever you like first physically put your eyeballs onto Lupin the Third, was it like at a anime club or at a convention or a tape you got on your own or how did how did that first happen? I there were no anime conventions in my state of Florida when I was growing up, which is a hilarious statement to make because once upon a time there were so many anime conventions in Florida throughout the two thousands that they just kind of you know all deprived each one another's oxygen. Um, so I didn't go start going to an anime club until I was maybe 16 or so once I was able to drive. Cause back then the driving license age was 16. So I saw mm-hmm. this, I would say probably when I was 14 or 13, maybe 15 or so like around that time. And the mm-hmm. way I got it was because I was very fortunate in that the local comic book shop, um, the owner of it was a fan of anime. This is not a common thing, by the way, as far as comic book shop people go, but he was a big Mm -hmm. fan of Akira and a big fan of Crayon Shin-Chan. And so they would buy all the anime tapes and then rent them out for $2, which when you're a teenager, you can rent anime for $2 much easier than you can buy anime for $30 (laughs) a tape. Mm, And so I rented the Castle of Cagliostro and Lupin the Third's Greatest Capers, those tapes, and saw them that way uh, on my own accord. Just because I knew from reading, like, you know, very early era, like, can't even really call it, like, the internet as we know it. It's Usenet and stuff like that that said, like, oh, yeah, you got to go watch, you know, Hayao Miyazaki. He's the master. You have to go track down all his stuff. And so once I saw that, I put in my order and I had to get my Nausicaa and my Kiki's delivery service, my Lapita Castle in the Sky and my Castle of Cagliostro, you name it. You know, we were just, I just was like, got to get these things. So for you, Bill, since my way into Lupin was directly inspired by yourself, because you, the first time I watched this movie was with you sitting down at college a couple years ago. Um, so how did, how did you find Cagliostro? Did you get into Lupin before you saw Cagliostro or was this like the first thing? This was like the first Lupin thing I ever saw. Um, funny enough, I got into it thanks to my brother because at the time the manga release was pretty cheap to find everywhere and he had gotten really into Miyazaki at the time. So it's kind of similar to Daryl. He wanted to get all the Miyazaki movies because he was the master. So um, he got the manga release at the time and we watched it and I, and I guess... For some reason, it didn't really uh, stick with me at the time, but uh, compared to the other Miyazaki movies, but uh, this going back a second time just may- kind of really connected it to me. And I think, funny enough, the thing that got connected me to the Lupin franchise was seeing the episode zero special at a convention, and just how, f- for for me, how fun that was. And so it was a it was a mixture of episode zero and Castle Cagliostro that got me into Lupin. And what about you, Tobias? Because I know you're you're kind of just now getting into Lupin thanks to our, you know, uh, 
synergy yeah if you want to call <laughs> it that to your efforts so uh about 10 removed 10 years removed from daryl uh, i had like one guy in high school that was really into loop on the third uh this was back when it was airing on toonami or adult swim he's really really trying to push everyone to watch it but i just you know wasn't really my thing at the time and i kind of forgot about loop on it for the most part up until the past few years where it's, uh, you know, just looking online and seeing the, you know, the anime fandom online is still really into it. This this group of fans that are still really into the Lupons and the different color jackets, uh, I don't know, you know, <laughs> all, all of that. And uh, yeah, I've just sort of uh, absorbed Lupin through osmosis that way, where I see these characters as really more iconic as, you know, as just an icon rather than a series that I really had to absorb individually. I think a lot of that is a function of the fact that for feels like about a quarter of a century, you know, Loop on the Third has been treated as exactly that. Like, hey, well, we're obliged to release uh, something each year uh, made for TV special, like a TV length movie. And it's not going to be too crazy or too out there. And, you know, we're just going to be like kind of. Just coast along on, you know, be relatively derivative. And that's not to say that um, I dislike um, all those specials. Some of them are actually quite good. Um, Episode Zero, as you mentioned, I really do like that one a lot. Um, But there are uh, a lot that are nothing to write home about. And so it wasn't until, you know, maybe like a few years ago that, you know, the loop on the third TV series, people were like, okay, we need to knock these out of the park. And I would contend that, you know, the more modern Lupin the Third TV series, whether it's the woman called Fujiko Mine, which is very different, and then Lupin the Third series four and, and, and now five, all of those are really, really good. Yeah, I mm-hmm. probably would have completely continued to ignore the series had it not been for Fujiko Mine and what, 2012 or so. Yep. I did catch a few episodes of that and really, really enjoyed the aesthetic there. Uh, made with a lot of the same team that did worked on Redline, I believe. Uh, yeah, Takeshi yeah, Koike did uh, yeah. the character designs for it, but he didn't handle the animation for it. And so the animation isn't quite, you know, what he was sort of hoping for. And so then he did a special, mm. um, you know, uh, Jigen's Gravestone. Um, yeah. And that was like directed in the animation also and telecom animation film, who is generally now the Loop on the Third go-to studio. Uh, they made a big deal. Telecom animation film doing the animation this time, folks. So we're not messing around with the, you know, vehicle chases and stuff like that. And then uh, he did another one, the blood spray of going on which is also really, really fun stuff. Yeah. I think definitely with the uh, Fujiko Mane and the new movies coming out, just seeing clips of those really got me interested in, you know, going back and checking out these iconic characters and seeing what they're about. Yeah, I believe Fujiko Mine was for the 40th anniversary or uh, 45th. Like, uh, I did a commemorative panel for Loop on the Third for, like, the big anniversary that it was celebrating. And now another five years have passed. I believe, yeah, it was the 45th year anniversary in 2012 because I believe 50 year, th- year anniversary was last year. And mm-hmm. so that's part of what is driving, like, these new Loop on the Third projects is that there are these milestone, um, you know, for the creation little side tangent i hope that going going on's uh the the going on movie um the comes out at some point yep because i i know jigan's gravestone got released by discotheque it's just the going on one has is still in limbo for some reason i think that's one of those time limit exclusivity things because you know japan likes to have their limited edition with their fancy art book and all that kind of stuff and they don't want the american release coming out that's super cheap too soon uh, it's very much like Gundam in that sense. 
but I'm fairly confident that uh, Discotech is going to release it when they can. When they can. Mm-hmm. So, Daryl, did you notice any like significant uh, peak that occurred in people's general awareness of Lupin whenever it was running on Toonami for the first time? So, certainly the Toonami run in the early 2000s was like a more widespread introduction of Lupin the Third to a generation of people. Lupin the Third was never like this huge widespread thing, uh, even in throughout the 90s. Like, you know, a couple people knew about it that were into it, but as a rule, it didn't have the saturation that anything on television would get, you know, everyone could see sailor moon. Everyone could see dragon ball. Everyone could see Gundam wing and you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so even though that adult swim broadcast was not necessarily seen as like a big success at the time, as far as the ratings are concerned, a lot of people saw it that way and were introduced to Lupin in that way. And so that's what sort of led to Funimation releasing, you know, their specials and, you know, people reissuing Castle of Cagliostro, for example, uh, that manga DVD. I think my timing is off on that by about a year uh, as far as when that reissue happened. But um, I believe it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, yeah, I think the manga release was um, put out like in the early 2000s, like 2000. Yeah, probably maybe even the year 2000 or if not. And so the... TV one came out later, but yeah, I mean, that was really when I think there started to be a little more effort toward like, okay, we can have like a specialized loop on the third message boards and back when people use message boards and you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah there really wasn't like a significant, like major, like organized, like here's our loop on the third things. There was just like more like a, a key group of like very dedicated people, uh, many of whom are mm -hmm. still around. Do, do you think it was more the floodgates open because of Fujiko Mine and the more recent successes? Difficult to say. I mean, Fujiko Mine was seen by people who are like into the simulcast era of fandom, which is more of the modern stuff. Um, I don't know how many of those people who saw Fujiko Mine then went and tracked down Loop on the Third because that's a divisive show. I love it. I think that's another one with it's got a pull quote from me on the box, by the way. But um, <laughs> the thing is, is that the appeal of Lupin the Third to different fans can differ widely. And that's part of why the Castle of Cagliostro was not seen as a success. Uh, and I'm going to basically regurgitate something I wrote in 2012, which then got taken and put into the Wikipedia entry for this film. I noticed as I was checking, like, oh, they're just quoting me. Um, <laughs> but the thing that made Lupin the Third, the original series, stand out so much was, in a, to a large degree, the fact that it was ostensibly set in the real world. Uh, for all its flights of fancy and like impossible physical feats there were real guns real cars real booze you know real types of clothing etc etc and it had that mm -hmm. same sort of appeal as james bond 
in that sense, right? Like um, you mm-hmm. read those Fleming novels and he's talking in detail about like, this is the kind of uh, booze that I drink and these are the cigarettes that I smoke and et cetera, et cetera. Lupin Third had that same level of detail. When I talk about that, I mean the anime because it wasn't so much the original Monkey Punch manga, uh, but the anime, the original one, they, they went for that uh, and people were into it. And so when Miyazaki did the Castle of Cagliostro and when they stepped in on those later episodes of the first series, he and he wrote about this in 1980 an issue of Animage. I happen to have the article right in front of me, but he made a conscientious effort of like, I don't like that the seventies are all apathetic. Like in the sixties, everything was about like, Hey, check it out, man. Uh, we're going for it. And so he changed up like the gear that loop on the third had to, to say it lightly. Um, the car, for example, the gun, the lighters, etc., uh, all changed under Miyazaki. And so the longtime fans, they looked at this like loop on the third shouldn't drive a crappy car like that. Whereas now the <laughs> Castle Cagliostro is so famous. Like when I think of what is the loop on the third car, I think of the Fiat. I don't think of the Mercedes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's actually when you look at the grand body of loop on the third works out there, it's actually the Mercedes is his default car. But that sort of thing then carries over into Fujiko Mine as far as why people are device bonded. People are expecting really crazy accomplished key animation cuts uh, out of Lupin the Third. And Fujiko Mine is much more stylized. Fujiko Mine is much more about its narrative and the you know mental states of its characters. And while there are parts that look cool, it mostly has people standing still and talking, which I don't mind. But for people who are looking for like really fluid animation, um, you know, I know some people who are diehard fanatics who like Fujiko Mine broke their will to watch anime anymore because like God, Lupin is dead, you know that that sort of thing. Jeez, oh, wow. <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, uh, I guess if the only thing that you really care about is key animation, which is, you know, a portion of the fandom now, or, you know, they all use Sakuga as a word now because of that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yeah, Fuchiko Mine may may lack. And so, you know, when they came back for this new part four and five, they were like, okay, we'll bring the animation back up and, you know, give a little bit sort of grand unification for everybody. But yeah, so like Mm -hmm. the fandom of Lupin the Third is very heavily dependent, I think, on... What's your baseline? What's the thing that you saw first that is like, aha, that's what Lupin is to me. And it can can vary. It's uh, it's a little fractured. That That's kind of funny because for me as a Lupin fan, I pretty much like all the styles of Lupin, whether it be kind of the monkey punch, 70s nihilism, more cynical Lupin to the more lighthearted Cascagliostro to the more stylized Fuchiko Mine, like, some of the specials are really bad, but (laughs) in general, I I like all types of Lupin. Well, sure. I'm also in that boat, Uh, but as far as I think the fandom is concerned, I think people have to, like, dive in sort of deep to find that, oh, wow, there's this variety to it. There's this versatility Mm -hmm. to these characters. Uh, even Hayao right. Miyazaki is like, none of that's the real Lupin. Lupin the Third was a product of the 60s and 70s, damn it. And all this other stuff is just garbage. You know, like that's Hayao Miyazaki's <laughs> take on it, you know, the Cliff Notes version. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm like you. And that's part of why I like uh, this latest series so much, because it takes elements of Cagliostro and takes elements of the 70s series, takes elements of the wacky 80s series, takes elements from the original, like more hard boiled stuff. And it just, you know, gives you something for everybody. 
So I think that's a good way to sort of hone in on Cagliostro itself to sort of examine like what exactly are are these elements that people latch onto about specifically this movie. And I think a lot of it is just Miyazaki and flair, like the things that he does in his other movies that he sort of started doing in this in this film and a lot of people who would really like Miyazaki's other works I think would be more more easy to gravitate towards this as their as their go into into Lupin the Third because they already have that through line of already liking Miyazaki stuff and if they're able to get into Lupin this way um, maybe a good way to introduce them into more more Lupin things would be like to show them I don't know part four part five or something because it's sort of like the midpoint between sort of Cagliostro-style things and more um, Fujiko Mine-style things. Right. Like, depending on which version of Lupin the Third you get, you know, you either get a guy who's like a pacifist or a thief with a heart of gold or a guy who's going to shoot you straight between the highs and, mm. uh, you know, ravage the women, so to speak. Uh, you know, very, very different interpretations of the character depending on what you see. And, yeah, the, the Miyazaki-style hero on display here um, is you know, a little more easily digestible to people uh, throughout the years. Yeah, because in Casca like, he's not trying to have a romantic relationship with Clarice. He's more just kind of the the white knight trying to save the princess <laughs> in this in the story. And also, uh, I think Reed Nelson, who's kind of the Lupin the Third historian, has kind of talked about where in Castlecagliostro, you could kind of see it as a bookend of the Red Jacket series where Lupin's much older now and he's more mature than when he was in his Red Jacket or Green Jacket days. There's a funny story, I'll say, to demonstrate just how sharp of a deviation the Miyazaki interpretation of Lupin III is over the original creation. Uh, Lupin III is created by a guy who uses the pen name Monkey Punch, and he actually, in the early 1980s, um, he would come to America. Like, there are areas where it's like you look on the flyer for, like, San Diego Comic-Con. Like, Monkey Punch is there. Nobody knows who he is. just some guy. Uh, and he would actually wow. go to um, the anime club meeting um, that was in California called the Cartoon Fantasy Organization, um, which is basically, you know, the first like national anime club, the first organized like big anime fandom sort of thing. Um, you know, one of the first, I should say, because there was a lot of Yamato stuff as well. But those guys would, and they still, they still exist by the way, but I mean, they would have meetings and they would like show things and like the Tokyo movie Shinsho rep would come and say like, Hey, we have Castle Cagliostro here. Uh, do you think you can help promote anime in America? And they like said, Oh, well, sure. No problem. We'll show it at Worldcon, uh, which is the world oh, science wow. fiction convention. They got that to happen. Nobody showed up because in 1980, everyone was like, ah, this thing's a stupid cartoon. It's not serious. And then the few people who did show up, liked it and then didn't fill out the audience survey. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so th that's a sort of thing that happened. But anyway, monkey punch himself, came to the CFO meeting and sat there with the American anime fans, watched the Castle Cagliostro like with them, or maybe he brought Mama. I don't remember, but he, I, I th I'm pretty sure he bought Cagliostro. And then he commented, this is Monkey Punch, by the way, creator of Loop on the Third. He said, man, I would not have had him rescue the girl. I would have had him rape her. That is the difference between certain interpretations of this character and others, which is why it's 
you know, such a divide, you know, you can be a Miyazaki fan and then you definitely don't want to watch like, you know, Island of Assassins or AKA in memory of the Walter P 38, which is like the hard boiled, like, you know, cowboy bebop ish kind of loop on the third. Um, there's just so much, uh, Delta or like, uh, yeah, I think on the, uh, Cass Cagliostro Blu-ray, they have an interview with monkey punch where he's very, in kind of a polite way, just kind of like, it's not my, version of Lupin the Third. I'm, and he's like, he, Miyazaki did what he wanted to do, where I gave like the idea of the castle and did a few concepts, but this wasn't, I wouldn't view this as my Lupin the Third. Well, yeah, I mean, um, he, he's forced to say that because it's become the single most famous um, interpretation of the character, the one that people have seen the most, and it's not his version of the creation of it. Uh, and so... You know, yeah, he owes a lot to this movie. He can't trash it because it's an excellent film. It's just not maybe the best loop on the third film. I I think he would probably say Mystery of Mamo is more in line with what he it, what his intentions are. With yeah, Mystery third. of Mamo is definitely one of the ones that is uh, shortlist for like closest to the original spirit of loop on the third. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's very easy to see why people would want to gravitate towards something like Cagliostro that's a little bit more sort of not quite as mean-spirited. Um, it's not even mean-spirited at all. Like, Lupin is a very likable character. Like, all of the characters are treated very well. Like, Fujiko is not, like, put in strange situations like she would be in other iterations, uh, like Mystery of Mamo, for example. And it, it just has this sort of, uh, like family friendly very easy to watch very just fun whimsical feeling to it and that's just what audiences are more likely to gravitate to and i can't blame him for that i mean i i love that stuff i mean i i love a lot of lupin i love most of it but i can't blame people for thinking like oh yeah cagliostro is like the best lupin or something i, I couldn't blame anybody for saying that i think one thing in getting more into talking about the movie I, the one thing I really like about it is the pacing of the movie because I think some things that happen with the TV specials is they kind of get too bogged down in the plot, whereas the Cagliostro plot is pretty simplistic so that you can understand it. And there's always a really cool action set piece that happens at some point in the movie. Like in the beginning, it's the big car chase trying to save Clarice where she's almost going to fall off the cliff. Or later in the movie, the, the really intricate mm-hmm. clock tower sequence where it's Lupin and Clarice trying to get to the top and escape from the count who's chasing them. Mm-hmm. Or the, the in, in between when Lupin is trying to break into the castle and he has all these mishaps of trying to not get sucked down by the water or trying to land the insane uh, Looney Tunes like jump that he does. <laughs> <laughs> that scene where he's trying to swim up the waterfall has me rolling every time I watch it. It's so funny. Yeah, where he's like, oh, I, I got this. I got this. I No. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of sequences so in, in this film in particular that were very influential, not just on later Loop on the Third things, but like subsequent video games, subsequent animations. A lot of uh, years later, you know, they were willing to come out and admit that, like, say, for example, the end sequence in The Great Mouse Detective or the mm-hmm. the Batman the Animated Series episode of The Clock King where they fight in the clock tower. Like, those are directly homages to the castle of Cagliostro. I mean, they weren't mm-hmm. able to really admit that, you know, at a point. But, you know, everyone could see it was plain as day. 
Uh, similarly, like if any of you ever played the like now 20 plus year old video game Time Crisis, this is an arcade game, a light gun uh, game. I've, pl- I've played Time Crisis too. Okay, no, the <laughs> original, the original Time Crisis is very much, very heavily inspired by the Castle of Cagliostro. There's a girl who's kidnapped and taken to a castle by a person against her will, and you have to get into the castle, and the, uh, you have to fight against enemies who look very much like the armored sort of uh, shadow guys that are in this film. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of little elements like that in that game. And that's just, you know, one example. Then as far as stealth things, like there's like uh, Metal Gear, uh, Thief the Dark Project, uh, the latter especially, they explicitly said, yeah, we were looking at the parts of like, how did Lupin get into the castle and how did he navigate around? We put that into our game as like uh, not directly like scene for scene, but just like the methodologies of like the kind of stuff that you would do. So this is a film that, um, you know, has a very far reach. And I think it's just because of, yeah, those scenes are so great. And I think the other thing that helps it is it's not stuck in a particular time period. It's, it's kind of got a timeless quality of just, it's a particular, like, there's nothing that screams it's the 70s, like Mystery of Mamo does, or with the 80s uh, pink jacket series where it's it's very much an 80s vibe with the very bright pink colors where um, you could kind of play it at any time and it doesn't feel dated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Miyazaki, he likes to set things in this sort of um, fantasy version of Europe that he kind of got from, you know, going overseas to do uh, location scouting research for... Um, you know, some various projects that he would later incorporate into a variety of other things. And so that sort of fairy tale aspect of it does mean that it's not tied to like a specific contemporary uh, thing, which is funny because he later that year, like a year later said, look, loop on the third is done and over because he's tied so closely to the the seventies and the sixties. <laughs> Come on, Miyazaki. <laughs> But yeah, um, it is it is interesting to look at Lupin the Third in the way that the castle itself is sort of like a character in the film because a lot of a lot of Lupin works are very focused on like from going to exotic location to exotic location, sort of like globe trotting sort of deal. Like Mystery of Mamo in particular is has a lot of that. Like they're in a cafe in Paris and then they drive five miles and they're suddenly in the desert and things like that. But um, like. Castle Cagliostro has like it it stays in that in the one location but the location is so versatile like there's so many different like layers and rooms and locations within just this one castle that it doesn't like throw your audience for a loop whenever you go to like a different room or a different section because they all understand that this is just like a a winding mysterious castle and it really does help add to the story and to the mystery that they're trying to convey uh, in the in the emotions of the story, um, but it it is interesting to see like a Lupin thing that takes place like in one centralized location that is so uh, so varied. I guess I think that is an indirect uh, Takahata influence. Uh, one of the things I covered in my panel was that Isao Takahata was very influenced by a French animated film uh, called The King and the Mockingbird. And he'd show this movie to everybody he knew, including Miyazaki, and. 
It's only recently been made available in on DVD with English subtitles uh, because it's one of those things, kind of like The Thief and the Cobbler, where it took many, many years to fully complete since the original cut was technically incomplete. Um, hmm. So when, when it finally came out in Japan, like Takahata was like, uh, we're releasing this, by the way, guys. We're, we're doing that. Uh, so if you ever watch that film, it's very structurally... Uh, similar to what the castle of Cagliostro is like. It's set in a weird looking castle with a bunch of varied locations, plot line, also uh, a lot of similarities there. Uh, There's even like some weird ninja guys in that too. Um, But yeah, like the architecture of the castle is very strange because it's, um, you know, the person who wrote it is this uh, hilarious French author who mostly, you know, didn't write animation necessarily, but you know, he wrote uh, French films uh, and, and the like. He was a poet. Um, I don't I, I don't want to bog you down with that details, but like the point is there's a film called um, The King and the Mockingbird, which is a lot of that sense of like we can basically have a film take place more or less in a key location that just has a bunch of stuff in it uh, and not have to then go all over the place uh, as a result. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is aided by a really great like uh, like a couple of scene compositions where early on we see a, a huge bird's eye view of the castle of like the layout of not only the keep itself but like the, the the surrounding lake and the aqueduct. I think that that really sets things up and really is able to give you a really good uh, like idea of where everything is in the area. Yeah, incidentally, there is in fact a real castle of Cagliostro, and it looks nothing like what you see in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, to the characters that are introduced in the movie, um, like Cur- Clarice is very endearing as the damsel in distress. Like uh, she's not a complete damsel, where she has some initiative, like trying to escape uh, in the beginning of the movie, or when they're trying to escape at the top of the castle where she makes a giant leap towards the machine gun that the count is firing oh yeah and uh which is pretty dangerous so i think if she was just a typical help me lupin help me then uh i think people wouldn't have an endearing wouldn't feel so um warm to her and also just her warmth and caring that in the little scenes that they show like when Lupin has taken the fall from the cliff, her um, getting her um, glove, wiping it down with some water and putting it over him, um, just that show of care. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think one and thing... Sort of, and uh, sort of like that resourcefulness that you've you've come to, you kind of 
later would come to expect from like Miyazaki's main female protagonists. Mm-hmm. And you see like hints of that in this. I don't mean to, you know, forever taint this film or anything like that, but I will also add that this character specifically is one of sort of the uh, you know, inspirations for Moe as a concept. <laughs> oh well, I, I can forgive it. <laughs> uh, and I, I, w- one last thing for me, and then I'll then I'll shut up. Is uh, I like the little flourishes that are throughout the movie. Like for example, they the movie can take its time. Like uh, at the beginning, um, Lupin's jalopies, one of their tires goes out, and Lupin and Jigen do rock paper scissors to figure out like who's going to put the thing on the tire. Or incidentally, they when, changed it to that Fiat Five Hundred because that's Otsuka's car. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that's pretty funny or um when he's with clarice doing his thief speech and he does that little trick with the flower and then all the nations of the world flags that come out yeah a lot of those little moments give it a lot of a lot of excellent character that you can like think back on that movie and be like you know what i thought that scene was really cool and it does a lot of that sort of thing with some of the environments as well like there's a lot of shots of just like the the nature and the the uh like the environments and things like that in the film and it really takes its time and just lets you sort of get get sort of washed over in this in this uh, beautiful lush environments that they've created and it's not a super long movie either because like you said it's always moving along and yet it still has the time mm-hmm. to to let you like take in some of the scenery in less than a hundred minutes it's kind of a, a feat that uh, not a lot of people can pull off. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is born out of just the fact that uh, it did have to be made so quickly that, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of sure. like a job just for Miyazaki to do. And he just kind of like put his nose to the grindstone and did it because um, mm-hmm. for my money's worth, like, you know, you can argue over which movie is Hayao Miyazaki's best. Um, but I think this is one of his most entertaining because it's not really bogged down with like, I have to deliver a social commentary message or, uh, <laughs> anything like that. There's no, like, um, got to hit you over the head with that sort of stuff. Get it in there, which, you know, Miyazaki mm-hmm. would like go for that, you know, no matter what, um, you know, usually when you have movies like this, um, you know, make it go like too far in the opposite direction where it's like, it's too forgettable. I think like in this case, you know, I think just uh, less is more, and I think it works out like really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he still managed to get a little bit of hint of that social commentary in there, especially when like Zinagata shows up to like the whatever, like the little UN or whatever it was, and like presents his evidence, and he's and the the politicians are just like, if we let the truth get out, that might be very embarrassing for some nations. The people will believe whatever they want to believe, and I'm just like, ah, that's relatable. <laughs> and also like some Miyazaki themes are in there like the stuff with the gyrocopter which is the constant theme of flying in Miyazaki movies and I, I oh yeah while there's not a very social uh political uh, social message about nature like in other Miyazaki films I think just the big reveal of what the treasure is is a big <laughs> sort of a Nate has a bit of a nature vibe where right. it's revealed that and then that became the template for like every other Lupin button was made and said up oh, we gotta do something like that uh, it's a very mm. rare that Lupin actually gets the money and gets away <laughs> ever since the castle of Cagliostro <laughs> well at, mm. at least the um, MacGuffin 
in this case, does not get immediately destroyed, like in all the Lupin TV specials, where it seems he gets the MacGuffin, and then for some reason... It's either immediately lost, or they discard it, or it's worthless, or, you know, the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The real treasure was the ancient Roman cities we discovered along the way. Now, I will say this, like, uh, in in this Animage article, like, just to put you an idea of, like, Hayao Miyazaki's mindset. For those who don't know about him, uh, to say that he was uh, not really too thrilled with America is sort of an understatement, right? So, like, he, Mm -hmm. when Japan had their student protests, which were basically over, is Japan going to side with the United States or the USSR? Are they going to embrace communism? Are they going to embrace capitalism? Miyazaki was on the communism side of things, as were many of the early forefathers of Japanese animation, sort of like uh, you're blacklisted from film, so you got to work in cartoons instead. So what Miyazaki wrote in anime, is he basically said, you know, yeah, the loop on the third started to be apathetic when we were working on a TV show. We were trying to overcome that because my friends and I weren't in an apathetic mood. In Vietnam, the National Liberation Front was still fighting, so there was still hope. The National Liberation Front is the Viet Cong, people. Miyazaki was rooting for the Viet Cong, and so there was still hope because they were still fighting. Uh, so that's why he was in such a joyful, like upbeat mood to really hope that uh, they 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 beat the Americans. Uh, so that's uh, effectively messages that are not overtly present in this film, but uh, on his mind at all times. Uh, I for like Daryl was saying how. Um, Cascagliostra is now like any of the other Lupin, like the Monkey Punch Lupin. I think one thing that I find jarring about this movie, my one is Fujikomine, who's usually the kind of the femme fatale seductress. Like she's she's basically a placeholder in this movie. Like that could be somebody complete, somebody else, and <laughs> it'd be fine because it doesn't seem like Fujiko to me in that in Cascagliostra, except when she's on her bike. Miyazaki probably didn't really know what to do with her within the context of the film that he was trying to create because I don't know, maybe he maybe it was a time thing and didn't have time to think of a really good idea for it, or maybe he just wanted to keep her more just vanilla in this movie. I think he had a, a very different outlook of what Fujiko Mine should be. Uh, I don't think he I don't Probably, think he didn't yeah. know what to do with her. I think he said, I want her to be this uh, because I want it to not be what she's been in the past. And so mm-hmm. he went and made Fujiko to be like, you know, like uh, in the episodes that he did of the TV series, it's like, OK, yeah, it's true that he's the one who's got Fujiko getting stripped naked. But she's also like, you know beating the hell out of everyone, you know, jump kicking and firing around a machine gun. And so it's very important that, you know, Fujiko fire around a machine gun and throw grenades and stuff <laughs> like that in this movie and not really um, be seen in a way that she's like a sidekick or an underling. And she wanted her to be, mm-hmm. you know, the, the separate um, entity. And uh, I just like you said, how the, all the TV specials fall, they kind of cast Kegliester template. It, it created the, what I like to call the Lupin gang least valuable player syndrome, where at least one of the Lupin gang members really has nothing to do, or they're just there because they have to be there. <laughs> would you say that that award would go to Goemon or Fujiko for this movie? Uh, I would say for me, it'd just be Fujiko because the, all she, the one sequence when she's doing stuff is when they're escaping from, Clarice's room, but if you took that scene away, uh, she's 
she's not really doing anything of importance. Well, well she's she looking at the camera yeah. when they go down to the yeah. uh, counterpoint yeah. works. That's true. She does. She does do that whole like news news anchor thing, and you know I had forgotten about that for a while, and then I remember that scene. I was like, oh yeah, so Fujiko actually has a whole lot more to do in this movie than I originally remembered. But right. Plus, she's also after the treasure separately on her own, and all right. these things end up becoming the template of you know what to do with Fujiko throughout most of these subsequent you know '90s to 2000s works <laughs> of Lupin the Third. And so you end up with that. In the case of Goemon, you know, they also, a lot of times, writers don't know what to do with him because, um, you know, he's sort of a walking anachronism and he's... He's the day and machina of right. the, of he the kinda, entire franchise. It's like, if something needs to get cut, bring in Goemon, let him do his <laughs> thing, and then exit stage right because Goemon is OP. I've cut another useful thing. However, Jigen <laughs> is also OP and uh, Lupin is the most OP. But... <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there are a lot of stories as a result of Cagliostro in particular where Goemon is either like the, you know, fifth wheel, so to speak, or like the whole story is about Goemon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I really like that episode of uh, that uh, focuses on Goemon from the Fujiko Mine show. It's, it's very funny. He's kind of like the weird comic relief of that show sometimes. And I think that that kind of they made it work. They made it work pretty well. Yeah, Miyazaki, he wanted to reinterpret Goemon to be like a a funny guy who was also an anachronism. And so Mm -hmm. I think um, especially when it came time to like do the dub of like even the 70s series two Adult Swim one, uh, they really went with that. I think uh, one thing I did just want to bring up uh, another maybe not narrative theme, the thing we'll see a lot of Miyazaki stuff. Uh, just like Akira Toriyama, this sort of love of mechanical design that bleeds through. Uh, the, I, I feel like a lot of that love just kind of gets overshadowed by some of their other, what we what we know their works. Ooh, yeah. But I really could have enjoyed seeing a lot of that stuff here with, with the car and, uh, and, and the clock tower later on. And I think that really uh, helps me appreciate this movie. Uh, I have to say, after watching it, easily one of my, my favorite Miyazaki movies now. And yeah, a lot of it is just write what you know, right? Draw what you know. In the case of, you know, for example, the Fiat, that was Yasuo Otsuka's car. Clarice's car in the beginning, that's Miyazaki's first car. So, I mean, they they knew these things in and out because, as Miyazaki stated, you know, it was a, a time where, you know, if you had a car, you had to maintain your car. You had to, like, know, like, the whole right. thing about it. And it was kind of a scene, as it were. And so you had animators who had an interest in, in that sort of thing uh miyazaki didn't have so much interest in say the gun side of things for example loop on the third loses his walther p38 more us immediately and then it's never used ever again um but you know there's a lot of things that you can tell they put a lot of like uh special attention to to get to really nail in the look of that and that is one of those things mm-hmm. that you know uh fans of loop on the third it's a general series they they have that expectation uh, of the animation quality uh and, and lupon the third castle Cagliostro is one reason why i mean that's also evident in mamo and you know various other things i think one character we have sort of failed to address so far is zenigata in this film and he's kind of like the secondary lead like there's a lot of focus on zenigata in this movie because there's a, a lot of scenes following him there's that there's that whole sequence where and they've done this in multiple lupon iterations where like zenigata and lupon have to sort of put aside their differences to defeat a mutual foe and uh i think that zenigata uh, all of his scenes in this movie i really enjoyed i think that the characterization of him is is very very good they make him 
very complex because you see him like trying to trying to do his job sort of fulfill his his lifelong dream of catching Lupin um, but then sort of realize that he is kind of out of place whenever it comes to like his his like superiors like he's trying to be a better person than sort of the system wants him to be let me bust this guy look at the evidence there's no better proof I saw it myself there were printing presses everywhere we understand that inspector hmm we have a high-level political dilemma. Interpol's exercise of authority would not be recommended in this matter at all. What do you mean? We got Cagliostro dead to rights! And I think that that adds a lot of, like, depth to his character. Like, he- I wrote it down in my notes, this, this, he, he's kind of, like, true lawful good <laughs> in sort of an- in, in sort of a, uh, industry that seems more like, we're gonna be good as long as it's profitable and things like that. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed Zenigata in this in this movie. I don't think he was quite as as wacky as we've seen Zenigata in other things, but he's definitely not as like weirdly like gritty and odd as he was in like Fujiko Mine. <laughs> well, sure, the Fujiko Mine interpretation of Zenigata is a drastically different one, where he's very cagey oh, yeah. and very intelligent and you know very capable. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. subsequent. Uh, part due to Cagliostro, but mostly due to like, you know, variety of other things has Zenigata as a bumbling nitwit. Um, and so, yeah, it just depends on, you know, which version that you get in this one. You're right. You know, he is the guy who is the, the upright, incorruptible man of justice who, um, mm-hmm. you know, is at least able to realize for the greater good, you know, we've got to, you know, do this and then I'll put you under arrest Lupin <laughs> this yeah. time for sure. He, he, he he's, he has a little bit of Inspector Clujeau type vibe when uh, when they're doing that sequence with um, him being kicked out and then Lupin runs up to I think in the manga dub they call him the lead guard Gustav and he's like mm-hmm. don't you see you rube that was Lupin and he <laughs> he he kind of plays the uh, the kind of the comedy role when. <laughs> in the middle of that sequence and also when he falls down the chute. But I feel like he's not quite as bumbling in this as that he is as the eh, is that he is in some other things. He's sort of like a very very even keel sort of middle ground. Like he's a little bit, you know, over enthusiastic, a little bit bumbleish, but not quite as bad as in some other ones. And I don't say bad as in like a negative thing cuz I think sometimes bumbling fool Zenigata is very entertaining, but he's just more He's kind of in the middle in this film. That's funny, Bill. I'm glad I'm not the only person that thought of Pink Panther when watching this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say like like Daryl was saying, um, Lupin has its ties to James Bond, but like I've said before, it also kind of has ties to the Pink Panther franchise, and also uh, in the supernatural elements it gets into later in other specials. Sometimes Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, those are my least favorite loop on the third things is when they try to incorporate elements of the supernatural. I feel like it sort of falls apart once they start having like actual magic, actual time travel. That's uh, that's my personal opinion, just because, uh, you know, I think so much of it is supposed to be like, yeah, you can have like weird cartoony things like he makes an impossible jump or he runs down the side of a building or, you know, what have you. But at the very least, you know, he's supposed to in some way occupy a reality. 
yeah, going through and seeing like uh, the first time they go through the castle and you're introduced to like the you know, the main villain. I, I was definitely getting like a James Bond, like a Roger Moore esque feel to that, and I, I did I did catch a little bit of like Pink Panther in there. It reminded me of that. Yeah, it's very uh, much certain. that. Like you know, you have like the especially with the Lupin specials, and you know even some of the later uh, anime series, you have like these sort of Bond style villains and then a Bond style girl. Because there's always another like new girl character for them to meet and not like, uh, you know, shack up with, but, you know, save the day for them or what have you. So one thing I definitely wanted to touch on is some of the differences in between the two English dubs, because I think that that's kind of interesting. Um, So, yeah, technically there are three English dubs, but two of full. Yeah. Two full length. So, Right. It, so the the third one would be like the manga entertainment safe for kids version. Is that what you well, mean? Well, what I really mean is that technically there was a video game released in the early 1980s, uh, which used footage from the castle of Cagliostro in it. And they made their own dub for that. Um, you know, they had different name changes like Clarice was called Clarissa and stuff like that. There's a, you know, all, all this sorts of stuff uh, in there. But yeah, technically there are two dubs of Cagliostro as far as, you know, the streamlined dub and the manga one. But then you're right, there's another edition of the manga one that has like less uh, profanity or what have you. So I know that you, um, I don't I don't know exactly how long ago it was, but I remember that there was an AWO episode where you interviewed um, Michael McConaughey, who played um, the Count of Cagliostro. Uh, in the streamline uh, dub. Did, so did, did you gain any uh, insights about his involvement with this movie through that interview? Um, I don't, it's one of those things where he's been around for so long that, um, you know, a lot of times they don't necessarily remember every specific thing they worked on, but I think he did remember this. Um, and it's one of those things where streamline, the way that they worked was that, uh, much like uh, they used a company called Intersound for most of their dubbing. Uh, or a lot of their, their people came from Intersound. Um, and Intersound worked really fast on stuff. And so, you know, a lot of times they just remember like the working condition more than they remember like the actual um, <laughs> thing. Um, mm-hmm. But in the case of the Streamline dub, um, you know, I actually think it's, it's very well acted. I like the cast quite a bit. I like Bob Bergen as Lupin yeah. uh, quite a bit, even though in there, when I was talking about earlier about, you know, Lupin the third, you know, being derived from Arsene Lupin who wasn't yet in the public domain. Streamlines dub was made before Lupin the third was in the public domain. And so they could not call him Lupin the third. Uh, they, they have to call him Wolf. Huh? Wolf, hold it right there. You're under arrest, pal. <laughs> Gee, so glad you're safe, too. All right, Mr. Wise Guy, show me how to get out of here. I'm just as much at a loss as you are. Huh? Great. And, you know, then once in a while when they would say Lupin, they'd say Lupin instead because that's how it's written, you know, like loop the flower Lupin. It wasn't until, you know, the, the Adult Swim 2001-ish time frame where they really stuck their guns and on the dub, it's like, we're going to pronounce his name Lupin. Um, yeah, I think the Animega releases, they called him Rupon. Wolf or, or Rupon. Rupon yeah. with an R because then they could say, look, he's not, you know, L-U-P-I-N, he's Rupon. 
And so they can just say like, okay, we'll approximate the the Japanese pronunciation. I think in the streamlined dub, they they ended up pulling it off pretty well. I think in in calling him Wolf because they they sort of deliver it like it's like it's his moniker, or his nickname rather than his actual name, which is is definitely the better way to go. Right, because there are some throwaway dialogues are saying, ah, yes, he's the descendant of that thief, you know, Arsene Lupin. You know, like yes. they throw in a line mm-hmm. like that, so they acknowledge it. They just don't fully commit mm-hmm. to it. So I, it was kind of a gray area. I think I. I mean, they still called it Lupin the Third on the cover. You know, Lupin mm-hmm. Third's greatest capers. Lupin the Third, the Castle Cagliostro. Lupin the Third, the Mystery of Mamo. It's just in the actual dub, they would maybe say it like once. It was like a PG thirteen movie. You're allowed to swear like one time. You know, where this was that <laughs> for you know not getting you know the LeBlanc estate on their case or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do like the actors for the streamlined dub, but the streamlined dub is very controversial because the script uh, deviates very sharply from the original Japanese, as streamlined dubs tended to do. Uh, very heavily rewritten. A uh, lot of things they did to conceal the fact that this is a Japanese uh, animated work. For example, the opening credits. Um, for many, many years, across many, many releases, it's very been very difficult to get an uncut version of the opening credit sequence of this film because a lot of companies would follow in the lead of streamline pictures they'd say hey look uh we don't want people to know this is japanese all right so the thing about the original opening credits is there's japanese credits for you know <gasps> directed by Hayao miyazaki you know animation director by this person and so all that stuff of the driving to kegliostro and you know watching the train go by and all that stuff all that is like gone from a lot of releases, including streamlines, replaced instead with still shots as the music plays of like, you know, whatever they can get that did not have Japanese text in there. And even like throughout mm-hmm. the into the 2000s, there are DVD releases that did the same thing because it's like we need to get this thing on the shelf next to Cinderella, next to Snow White, next to like, you know, the Disney releases and people we have to fool them into thinking this is like a, you know, a thing like Disney. Right. And that was Mm -hmm. streamlines ethos. And so, uh, edits were made to the film rewrites of dialogue were made. Um, you know, the most infamous one by far is the going online. Uh, you know, there's a scene where Lupin is on fire and he's falling and going on, takes a sword (laughs) and swings and sheaths the blade and then Lupin's flaming clothes are cut off leaving only his boxers and then Goemon delivers his signature catchphrase once again I've cut a worthless object and so in the streamline (laughs) dub they changed his line to should have worn in his bestest suit and of all the things that Carl Masick ever did at Streamline, the thing that people got in his ass the most, they never let him off the case for it, and they shouldn't have, was rewriting it to should have worn an asbestos suit. Should have worn an asbestos suit. But that's the sort of stuff oh, that the Streamline man. dub did as far as the liberties with the script. Um, the manga dub as you may expect of dubs made around that time, more faithful to the original Japanese text. Um, I don't like the actors quite as much. It's not to say I dislike them, but I just don't think they're as good. Oh, but you know, it's very quippy. There's like a lot of added lines um, that were not in the other dub. Oh, well, well, streamline was the king of that streamline. The other thing about streamline dubs Mm -hmm. was there can be no silence. 
Uh, that was like one of those mm. things about like, you know, cartoons and animation for a time. It's like no silence. People have to always be talking. And so a lot of those scenes mm-hmm. of like them walking through the ruins of the burned down castle or, you know, the, that sort of stuff, you know, Lupin and Chigan are always got something to talk about back and forth in the streamlined dub. And uh, some of that carries over to the manga anime's dub. I, I noticed one in particular that really stood out to me and just flipping back between the, between the two dubs is uh, in the streamlined dub whenever Lupin is descending into the dungeon for the first time like he doesn't really say anything until he gets down there but like David Hayter is like cracking a bunch of like one-liners about how like oh this place needs some throw pillows or something like that and uh, I mean I thought in, in hindsight that's kind of funny but if, if that was all I had I'd be like ah come on. Well, I don't think they're ad-libbing. I think that's just the script they're given. That's really... uh, Well, I mean, ad-libbing in the sense of, like, the screenplay writers are ad-libbing. Right, that is correct. And again, it's one of those things where, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a concern of, like, oh, if you have too much parts where nobody's talking, then kids will get bored and they'll, you know, stop paying attention or they'll walk away or whatever. That's a legitimate concern Mm -hmm. people had for years and years and years. And I think to some extent it still exists in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But in the '80s, it was like it's like most like really obvious uh, with Saban <laughs> and with Masek and you know a bunch of people who did dubs in this fashion. Yeah, for for me, I'm not a big fan of Carl Masek dubs. I understand at the time it it made sense because well, one because of the fear in the '80s of the Japanese are going to take over. They bought the Marlins. They're going to they're going to rule. They're going to rule us financially. Uh, I mean, I never liked so streamlined dubs until later when it became like a, a little charming extra. It wasn't the default and only way you could see the thing was through their dub, where rife with mistranslations and mispronunciations mm-hmm. and weird localization errors. I mean, um, well, weren't they also trying? They were trying to westernize it more because they were afraid of, like you were saying, of just how people would discover it's, it's Japanese. Right. They'll get scared and turn away. They would, they would always, cause again, they would release their films in the theaters, um, usually very limited runs in LA and New York and stuff like that. Uh, and the art house circuit. But even there, they were like the people going, they would be very concerned if they found out, Oh, this is a foreign film. I don't want to read a movie. It's like, you know, that was a strong, like, hesitation on their part and so that's how they acted i never liked any of their dubs um you know really to be honest it's only now that you can actually get things in japanese with english Mm -hmm. subtitles and then switch to their dub that maybe like an a third dub like in the case of like you know cagliostro and akira and stuff like that and be like okay i can appreciate this for what it is but it's not like the only game in town that's really Mm -hmm. the issue with their their dubs it was the only way to watch the film and I, I, for me, I'm more attached to the manga dub because that was the first dub I, I saw for Cascagliostro. And I really like David Hayter's kind of sensitive um, portrayal, kind of the young hero. Like he says in the, his interview, the young hero voice he does. I think, And I also like Kevin Seymour, who was the voice director on the manga dub with his animes company that he uh, he's the voice of Inspector Zanagata. And uh, he that's one of my favorite voices because it, it still has that gruffness that you'd get with Zanagata, um, but it's not uh, a kind of a Yosemite Sam impersonation that I think some dubs have 
done in the past. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do like that, you know, David Hayter really does treasure the role of Lupin the third in this film quite a bit. Like, you know, even to this day, uh, you know, most people think of David Hayter and they think solely of Solid Snake. Um, but he is, you know, right up there with like, oh no, I'm like, you know, I'm Solid Snake and I'm Lupin the Third, damn it, you know. Uh, he, he's done plenty <laughs> of other roles because, you know, certainly he was in Fushigi Yugi and he did he did dub roles for a while. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, this was around that time. Yeah, I was uh, listening to an old Ancast and Brady Hartle, who worked on the Discotech release, said that. Uh, David Hayter called him out of the blue and said, "I, I want to be an extra. Have an extra on this. <laughs> yeah, I want to be an extra on the Blu-ray. Uh, any way I can help, please let me know." So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, again, the there are elements of you know both dubs that are very good. Um, you know, I just again, it's one of those things. Much like watching this film itself, the one you see first kind of imprints on you in a way as like, ah, that's kind of like the one, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's how it is for almost any anime. However you watch it first is how you perceive it as the best version. Well, because everything else at that point is being compared to a baseline, especially for certain things. Like if you see them at a certain age, then it further, you know, compounds and becomes like, oh, a nostalgic childhood sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. so you're willing to accept, you know, okay, yeah, intellectually I understand this is unedited or whatever, but it's not the one I saw when I was like nine or whatever, you know, like, people have that reaction to certain things like uh, certain cartoons and stuff like that, that they want mm-hmm. to see the edited one. They want like the rock, the dragon Funimation version of dragon ball yeah. Z or what have you. Cause that's the one they mm-hmm. saw, you know, when they were sitting down coming home from school. Why don't we talk about like um, for first timers um, of who's kind of new to Lupin the Third? Would you guys recommend this as a first thing to watch, or would you recommend more the, the newer stuff like Part Four or Part Five? Mm, I guess for me, I would say like I would cop out and just say both because it'd be like, oh yeah, Cagliostro, that's a really excellent movie, but yeah, oh yeah, part four and part five, really good shows, um, and they sort of, they sort of get you to understand, because I think it's important in the onset of, like, getting into Lupin for the first time to sort of get a baseline understanding of, like, who the characters are first, and then you can sort of branch out into understanding the different tones of Lupin, because I think Lupin, in both its serious iterations and its more, like, lighthearted iterations, is, like, it's still all Lupin, and the characters definitely have these through lines that are the same between the different tonal iterations. So I think that as a baseline, it's best to just understand the characters first and sort of get your feeling for which tone you like sort of as a secondary thing. And I think that Cagliostro does a pretty good job of introducing the characters, and you get a general idea of like who they are. For the most part, it's more more especially for like Lupin and Jigen and Zenigata, like, 
Goemon and Fujiko not so much, but still it's it's enough to really grab you. And if you're somebody that has already seen a bunch of Miyazaki movies and you like them already, which is honestly most people that have seen Miyazaki movies, it's it's a great place to start. But if you're looking for something a little bit meatier, probably the new, probably part four, I would say, at least personally. Uh, and, and part five, I think, is better than part four. But yeah, I mean, part four is also very good, uh, though it is different from any loop on the thirds in ways because it has a continuing storyline, which for many people is a benefit mm-hmm. rather than a, a negative because some people are turned off by loop on the third because like, oh, it's so episodic. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, many years ago in like 2012, right around the time I wrote that Cagliostro thing, I wrote a piece called what loop on the third anime should you watch second? Because I figured depending on where you, whichever one you happen to see first, the answer to what you watch next differs because, um, my -hmm. analogy I always give is that loop on the third is very much the James Bond of anime in a many years because, you know, depending on which phase of which version of James Bond you like, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like, like if you really like Skyfall, the Daniel Craig Skyfall, that doesn't mean you go back and watch like the Roger Moore, like, uh, you know, <laughs> Moonraker or something. Moonraker was Or it. the black exploitation, live and let die. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. those are like, they're all still James Bond, but very, very different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you may not like the Connery error or if you watched like, you know, uh, something else, you know, you may like the Pierce Brosnan or what have you like, there's just so many different, uh, interpretations of it. So I just said, look, okay, if you watched this one first and liked it, then watch this one, you know, and at the time, you know, a woman called Fujiko Mine was on, um, you know, certainly Cagliostro was being re-released. And so I said, okay, if you, if Cagliostro is the one you saw first, go watch the Fuma conspiracy after that. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. that's like the gimme, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you can go ahead and, and check that out. Uh, couple other people I know have written like some articles sorts of things of like, you know, Hey, where do I even start here? Um, and that seems to be a lot of people's hang up because they look at Lupin as a very intimidating, long running ancient thing. And they're just like, I don't know where to start. So I won't. Right. And so the thing is like, you know, Fuchiko Mine, for example, I would, as a longtime fan, I think it's more interesting to have seen other loop on the third first and then watch it. So you can see, aha, here's what they're changing up. Even though technically mm-hmm. it's like you could argue it's kind of a prequel sort of thing. The Lupin doesn't have a continuity, um, which is a good mm-hmm. thing because you can kind of just pick and choose bits and pieces. Um, but like, you know, if if you're concerned, if you have like hesitations on things that look too old, a lot of Lupin the Third is old looking. And so if you watch mm-hmm. like the first five episodes, the Lupin the Third Part Five, the most recently done series, that's a story that has a start and finish. And it looks new and it's modern. Um, you know, some people are taken by the fact that it's so modern. But, um, you know, that is a, a really solid place to start for people who have never seen Loop on the Third now. is like this latest series, that first uh, story arc. Yeah. Uh, sorry, a little side comment. I find it kind of funny that people were kind of like overwhelmed by the Lupin franchise because like you said, you can kind of pick and choose where you want to go, where in comparison people to- don't like to hear that as an answer. People don't like to hear yeah. pick and choose. <laughs> people have this weird, uh, OCD, you know, like completionist 
like bent to them. It's like, no, I have to start at the start. And it's like, it's not designed that way. No, no, no. I need to go to One Piece Volume 1, Chapter 1. No, you really don't. It's not designed that way. And, and you'll never convince people. They'll never listen to you. But it's true. It's like, you know, you're Cassandra from Greek mythology, forced to speak the truth, but believe, believed by nobody. <laughs> I think that it's just so different than uh, you know absorbing a lot of anime that's only one or two seasons is you know you kind of just start from the beginning there's no reason not to but I don't think there's a whole lot of shows that aren't I mean I don't think there's a lot of shows that it, the expectation is just to start with the most recent season like sure you can do that with one piece because it's built to be you know a long-running manga thing but you're still going to be missing stuff. And I think that there's just something in this otaku mindset, this brain where you, know, you, you have to get every little piece of minutia. You have to right. be able to catalog every reference and everything mm-hmm. in there that Lupin just, you just don't need to have that because it's really about these characters that themselves are. Right. It's like comic books, like an American style comic yeah. book. You aren't expected to go and look at action comics from the thirties or what have you. Right. If you want to read about Superman, mm-hmm. you know, you just pick up like the latest beginning of a story arc or something like that. And you basically get all you need to know from, you know, relatively minimal exposition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could just start from watching the series two or, you know, series five or series four or, you know, Castle of Cagliostro or, you know, what have you. And you'll probably be fine. And I think a little bit of that problem is sort of exacerbated by, like, the way that streaming works. Because, like, for example, if you go on Crunchyroll right now and search Lupin, you'll see Lupin part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, etc. And people looking for Lupin are going to be like, well, I can't just start at part five because that's the fifth one and sort of that sort of idea. But like back when like TV was the main way that people would watch things, it's like if they wanted to watch Lupin, they'd be like, okay, well, I know Lupin comes on at X time on X day. I'll just check it out sometime and see if I like it. This is from before the concept of home video and archives of things existed. You know, people didn't have VCRs really when Lupin the third first started. In fact, you know, that first Mm -hmm. series it wasn't it was canceled more or less it didn't quite make it to 26 and much like say the original star trek it gained its following gradually over the years through reruns on tv mm-hmm. and then took you know many years before they said oh let's do a second series for lupin the third and that second series you know the red jacket lupin as we'll call it you know that's the one that was the popular one uh, you know for its era mm-hmm. but there was no way for you to go back and watch you know, episode one, if, you know, you came in 90 episodes in, you know, you just sit down and be like, mm-hmm. okay, we're watching today. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, I guess, um, kind of our wrap up question is for the Castle Cagliostro, what is everyone's favorite scene or sequence? So quick question before that, Tobias, was this the first time you watched this movie? It was. Yes. I watched really? that okay. Congratulations. We should have heard more from you. Yeah, just give us give us more. What other thoughts do you have? I mean, uh, going into this, there, I, I definitely got the sense of Miyazaki, like uh, his style there. Uh, like I said, going in, all I know is the about Lupin was the characters themselves and their archetypes. So uh, I, I was sort of familiar with them just as archetypes going in. Uh, I will say my one little nitpick, and I realize this is a nitpick, uh, the one thing I would say is maybe isn't the best Lupin to start with is they don't really introduce the characters, but I don't know if the series ever really does. 
it just kind of mm-hmm. throws you into I don't know if that's a, a thing uh, but it kind of expects you to know who Lupin and Jigen are, are going in they seem to be hanging out at the beginning and like Goemon just kind of shows up later mm-hmm. uh, I did I, I was so enthralled with Kylie Ostro that I actually did watch part one episode one immediately after just to see what the what the deal is with this Lupin <laughs> so, thing. so you went from Castle Cagliostro uh, to Lupin is burning yeah exactly it's like very different uh, takes uh, yeah, don't be yeah, it, fooled it, it, by the green jacket was, similarity but it was uh, uh, yeah. but he got to hear the awesome original Lupin the third song <laughs> Afro Lupin you know Lupin the third I I can tell you I could swear like when I had like a VHS tape you know the theme song you know they actually pronounce it Lupin the Sado and so I'd always make fun of it by saying you know saying Lupin the Saddle Um, (laughs) and then later on when they did like later like uh, re-release they really went out of their way to say third like in a really like proper (laughs) English way and that's the version that is on all the DVDs and streaming and what have you you know the Lupin the third well they well they got they got self-conscious because you made fun of them I know they must it's like traveled across (laughs) space and time and uh, and got it Yep, but uh, you know, yeah, but definitely, this is definitely a Miyazaki movie. I mean, say equal parts Lupin movie and a Miyazaki movie. Uh, as the resident Miyazaki disliker uh, in the group, uh, I I think this is honestly one of my favorites. I, I think it's it, it it to me, I guess, is most compared most to something like Porcaroso, uh, where it's more modern, uh, more about. I don't know. It just feels kind of post World War Two esque movie rather than a, a high fantasy film like uh, uh, Princess Mononoke, which always mm-hmm. puts me to sleep <laughs> as a as as a state. And I actually did uh, embarrassingly, I did nod off a little bit during this movie. But I think it's less less a boredom thing and more of a just Miyazaki has something with his animation style and just the setting that's very pastoral that just kind of puts yeah. me in a very relaxed mood yeah i was so, about to say you just got too relaxed you couldn't resist yeah and it's funny because this is the part where like zinagata was flying overhead and uh you have like the, the count like you know, machine gunning him down and i'm over here like falling Ooh. asleep like oh i feel so bad for, for doing that but right. no like, it was still an excellent really excellent movie really enjoyed uh, uh like i said the mechanical designs really stood out to me very uh, similar to Pocoroso, for instance and uh, yeah, it's definitely got me. Uh, I can see why people enjoy this movie so much. I can understand why it's a classic. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, probably the the uh, the spark to get me into actually watching Lupin. Mm-hmm. So now you got to be like me and watch Fujiko Mine immediately after. Yeah, no, you should probably watch the Fuma Conspiracy as your follow yes. up yeah. to Cagliostro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably, conspiracy is really fun. Too bad it's I'll a, probably go ahead and skip a lot of the early TV for now and just move on to the movies because I know you guys have reviewed Fuma Conspiracy and Mystery of Mamo, and those sound like the next worthwhile entries for me to check out. I mean, yeah, the uh, episode zero first contact is really good. I like that one also. Yeah, you can maybe watch that one like you know after Fuma Conspiracy. You know, don't get like uh, mm-hmm. you know too crazy with it again you know Lupin is uh, you know a la carte and uh, (laughs) a lot of it is uh, really good and a lot of it is uh, really different and a lot of it is just like really plain don't watch Uh, Dead or Alive I really like Dead or Alive but it (laughs) is um, you know a movie that was meant to be like 
all right, these things are getting too rote and too like formulaic and we're going to do this movie and bring in monkey punch as like, uh, we'll bill him as the director, even though he kind of isn't really the director. Um, and dead or lives, a, a wild movie. Uh, well, well maybe if we find, maybe if we get ourselves too dead or alive maybe we'll have to come have you come back on and defend it because i don't know if bill and i will be that person well i mean here's the thing dead or alive came out the exact same year as uh farewell to nostradamus oh interesting uh, so there's two theatrical loop on the third f- animated films released in the same year and so i think um you know there's uh some aspect to the production of those given combined with the fact that monkey punch is not an anime <laughs> director um <laughs> right that you know you, you may uh find some some issues with it but that being said mm-hmm. i like um in memory of the walther p38 or island of assassins more than i like mm-hmm. dead or alive or uh, and, uh, a crisis i would say crisis in tokyo is another good Lupin crisis in tokyo special. uh was yeah one of the first of like the loop on the third specials that was like good uh, after like a long slump of like they weren't so hot and then Crisis yeah. in Tokyo was like, oh, this one's is perfectly nice. I remember I showed it in Anime Club like many years ago, and like somebody said, like this feels like an Inspector Gadget. Um, <laughs> that was their huh. thoughts on Crisis in Tokyo. Um, isn't there like I don't want to get into a too big long tangent, but isn't there like a connection between Inspector Gadget and Lupin? Um, sorta, you know. Um, sorta. I believe there's a maybe an animation mm-hmm. studio connection. Yeah, maybe. maybe. But uh, yeah, just just avoid uh, green versus red, which I don't really like. I don't like it. I don't understand why yeah. people like it. I mean, I, it's, I, I really hate it. It's it's too meta. And it also, is, it's very meta. And it's again, if you want to talk about a movie that like worships yeah. Cagliostro and it's like, this is how it has to be. Green versus red is like they're even covering the song in green <laughs> versus red. It's like, Ooh, you know, yeah. come on. I think the ones that have got me uh, as a newbie interested uh, were the new movies, uh, Jigen's Gravestone and Blood Spray of Goemon. I've seen a couple mm-hmm. of clips. I think Dave Merrill showed the clip from Blood yeah, Spray. Goemon just chopping off everyone's his, arms. Yeah, he just yes. killing everybody. And it's, I don't oh, think man, he was I killing them, but yeah, he was me- definitely messing them up. Oh, yeah. But yeah, if you told me they died from that, I would not object. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I can't wait to actually watch that movie, but I kind of want to wait because I know it'll come eventually. Someday. It will yep. uh, officially be released uh, at Definitely. no specified points. I can I, you know, predict when. So is it is it Discotech has got the right the rights? Yeah, to dis- well, I don't know if Discotech explicitly has the rights to that one, but they are the company that's releasing Loop on the Third at this point. No one else is really okay. touching it. So it's uh, it's a guess to, to me that's like okay, um, it's probably not out here just because there was a bit of a delay between Jigen's Gravestone as well. And so mm-hmm. I think it's all just contract, like, oh, it has to be exclusive to Japan for this much time kind of stuff going on there. That's my guess, anyway. I have no knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it a Funimation that had Fujiko Mine? Yeah. Yes. They, yeah, they Funico- did. Funimation released the woman called Fujiko Mine, and so they're, like, they have a separate dub cast that they use. And to be honest, like, they're, like, my least favorite dub cast. Um, Again, it's not like they're horrible or anything. It's just, you know, Funimation dubs are, you know, competent. And, you know, they're not horrible and they're not, like, exceptionally great. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're Funimation dubs. Uh, I found it cool, though, that they brought back Richard Epcar, who was in the original Genion dubs, and he doesn't really do uh, Funimation dubs all that often. So I thought that was cool. Right. Mm. Richard Epcar is... 
yeah, um, Epcar is one of those guys who um, has dubbed multiple characters at this point for Lupin because he's been working on it for so long. He's kind of like the guy who made that Foo's dub, a.k.a. the Genion dub, a.k.a. you know, like that cast with the Tony Oliver um, mm-hmm. who was originally a streamlined guy, you know, an inner sound guy. Um, you know, that's a big part of why those Lupin dubs are so great are, you know, because of the work that he puts in uh, among other people. I am Lupin the Third at your service. Name's Daisuke Jigen and I don't take no crap. I'm just a common run-of-the-mill thief. Nothing special. They call me Goyaman Ishikawa. I'm Fujikomine. Wow, legendary Fempatel. I go to work every day, risking my life to capture Lupin. I'm Inspector Zinagata. All right, guys, you ready to wrap it up? Yeah. Cool. All right, so uh, I guess right now would be time for, like, your final statements about the movie, what you generally think about it, and to uh, answer the question that we always try and answer at the end of every episode is, what is your favorite scene or sequence from the thing that we have watched? So out of all the scene, all the wonderful scenes in Cagli- Castle Cagliostro, which scene would be your favorite? Go ahead and uh, close us out with, with your thoughts there, Bill. Uh, my favorite sequence has to be the car se- the car scene when they're trying to res- uh, rescue Clarice uh, when she's being chased. And just because of how wacky it can get it sometimes when they're driving up the cliff and uh, when they're going through all the trees and they have this little flourish of you see the bird with inside the jalopy, uh, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which, is re- <laughs> yes. which is really cool. And just the that movie also introduced a lot of the Lupin music that you hear a lot like this I think it's called Sabra Tempero which they use a lot in the action sequences and just that version of the Lupin theme yeah the the 1980 theme I think is the official name of it even though the film came out in 79 (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, just uh, the great Lupin jazz music uh, playing as they're trying to chase through it's just real fun for me Mm -hmm. for you Tobias so uh, Bill stole mine. Thanks, Bill. But <laughs> nice. uh, I think my second favorite, one that kind of stands out to me, is the really goofy uh, scene where he dresses up as Zinigata and convinces the, <laughs> like, the two the guards and the police force to attack each other, sneaks in, and then uh, I think uh, the little butler dude, uh, he like mm-hmm. he's able to rig the statue up, the pitfall trap. Uh, so mm-hmm. as soon as they come back in, like, bam. Mm-hmm. For me, my favorite one is I mentioned it earlier, but it's when it's with Lupin and Jigen when they're in the scuba gear trying to infiltrate the castle through the aqueduct and Lupin like is trying to swim up the waterfall. Like for some reason that just that really tickles my funny bone. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so funny. For you, Daryl? Well, uh, for me, I would say it's got to be how I generally try to end anime's craziest deaths because a lot of times they put me on kind of late at night and I usually end at midnight. And so I oftentimes like to end that panel when the clock strikes midnight. <laughs> in ah. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Speaking of that, I like the part where like the, they're they're running around the clock tower, and the one guy gets trapped in the cog, and right when it crushes him, like the camera cuts back, and she's like, "Don't look." Yes. <laughs> Man, yeah, that's perfect. All right, guys. Well, we do have a couple of Twitter questions here, uh, Twitter and Facebook questions. So I'll just go ahead and get into these. Um, so John asks, "I don't know enough about Lupin to ask anything super specific, but." 
One, apparently the latest season was criminally underwatched. Do you guys think that newer anime fans, or those who watch seasonal shows, are not as into Lupin as older fans? That there is some franchise fatigue occurring, or is it something else entirely? And he has a second question, but I guess we can go ahead and tackle that first part first. So, Lupin the Third, the latest series, was very good, and it was, like, stylistically, like, they had, like, guest episodes, like, guest directors do episodes that would do, like, homages to previous styles of Lupin, like... You know, there'd be the first five episodes or like this new continuing story. And then there'd be like one episode that was like, let's do one like the 80s, uh, which was kind of like the equivalent of like the Adam West Batman was the loop on the third of the 80s, like the pink jacket. Mm -hmm. And then like other ones were other like throwbacks to back. Yeah, like like the in in between arcs, they would basically have a here's a throwback to red jacket. Here's a throwback to pink jacket. Exactly. Which was was fun. And but the thing is, is that loop on the third is this thing that's been running for a long time. He's not the fresh new kid on the block. Even if you put like a slick coat of paint on him, Lupin the Third has been around. And the thing about anime in general is every three months, there's 45, 50 new shows out yeah. every shot. And invariably, the thing that becomes the most popular thing is a lot of times, just going to say it, a lot of times it's something that's only popular for those three months, and then afterwards, it may as well have never existed. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. a lot of times Mm -hmm. that thing, like that flavor of the three months, literally, uh, is what dominates, and Lupin the Third wasn't that thing this time. I think, um, you know, again, uh, the people who wanted something like Fujiko Mine, they didn't really... Like get that they thought parts four and five are a little too standard and they want everything to be like Fujiko Mine and nothing else is like that so they kind of like up the hell with loop on the third Um, you know right now for example the number one show by far and away across the entire United States and most of the world is a show called Goblin Slayer I don't think anyone's going to remember this show once it ends it's not that good it's not that good yeah it's just it's very mediocre. It's very average, but you know, hey, that's what everyone happens to be watching. Loop on the third. Um, people are always going to remember mm-hmm. Loop on the third. It's always going to be around. And you know, the first series, like not just the latest series, the very first series. Like I said, people didn't really feel it. Like they didn't watch it. It got canceled. And it was only when it reruns that it got its following. It's very hard for people to go back and watch things that they missed. Like, oh, that was a whole season ago. Oh, I can't, don't have time for that. I got 50 new shows to watch. Mm-hmm. But I do feel that Loop on the Third Series 5, much like most of the other Loop on the Third Series, uh, is kind of a timeless thing. Like, you can go back and watch this a couple years from now. It'll still be good. Uh, well, like you were, like the question was saying, maybe it wasn't the most viewed uh, in the simulcast streams, but I'm, I'm surprised that Discotech has been able to basically release a new Lupin thing every year. Like they release a new Lupin special every year. Like uh, everyone's favorite quote unquote legend of golden Babylon's coming out pretty soon. So I'm, I'm curious like how it's been able to gain enough of the fandom where discotech's able to keep releasing uh, Blu-ray quality releases of the specials or the movies or the TV shows. I mean, it's it's gotten to the point where it is popular enough and a lot of it is, you know, that adult swim, you know, airing of the Foos getting on release, you know, had itself a fan base. 
the Genion releases themselves, you know, because of the way they released it, you know, the four or five episodes of disc for a show that's 152 episodes, no surprise, they didn't get through it all. Um, people, you know, they've been wanting the show and, you know, when it, now the fact that it is available on streaming, like, you know, just enough people are going back and watching it and saying, Hey, this is actually pretty cool. Let me go and buy this to, for them to make it, you know, worth their while to keep releasing it. And, you know, I think, uh, I hope they, they stay at it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think as far as like Discotech's whole, uh, you know, s- scheme schema, I guess would be that they don't really need the widespread appeal so much as they get that particular niche audience. So if you look at even like the few Discotech days that you know, the, the, their convention announcements, you know, you've got a whole room that's, you know, freaking out about giant robo or Kimagura orange road, but look at like the the wider anime fandom. They probably don't know what either of those series are. So mm-hmm. Lupin doesn't, I guess, like as far as that, they don't necessarily need the widespread appeal. It's just the, you're going to have the, the Lupin fans are going to buy everything <laughs> that, that comes out. Every Blu-ray the disc books yeah. out, they're going to be there. And it won't matter how long it takes either because like it took them a while for various reasons to get part four out. But I'm sure that that's still sold fairly well. But I'm thinking like, well, what if you take that and apply it to something like re- like ReZero? Like if Funimation released that for the first time like a year from now, do you think as many people would buy it? I don't know. No, because again, I think that that's one of those shows that's the hot thing you know, for its time. And it's really critical to strike while the iron is hot and like have say Anaplex or whomever release like, you know, the special super expensive edition. So that the people who are swept up in the manual drop the hundreds of dollars because mm-hmm. it's the bleeding edge new thing. Um, you know, I question, you know, how many of those people will still be intensely into that, uh, you know, five years from now or what have you. I mean, I don't how much ReZero discussion or even people in ReZero costumes do you see at this point? Only a few, not nearly. I, like, I had to think for a second. Like, that's the show with the blue and pink hair. Yeah, girls, that's the right? only thing people were yeah. into that show for. <laughs> Is the blue and the pink haired girl who was like, oh, look at yeah. the, you know, hot babes that, you know, are my anime wife. Yeah, like the only reason I even still think about that show is because they announce like a new figure for that character like every month. And that's what keeps it in my mind, at least, even though I'm not I'm not actively paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. I still just see it. All right. So the second part of his question is, um, what is everyone's favorite Lupin reference slash influence they've seen in other anime or pop culture in general? What have been some of the most unlikely places it has turned up? I think, at least for my answer, mine's kind of a cop out. My favorite Lupin reference is Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. Hey, nice. <laughs> so I know Bebop is like an amalgamation of many things, but it definitely has a lot of uh, Lupin genes in it. Yeah, and no, I feel like the general character, like the the character group there in in Bebop, is is pretty much like shot for shot. You know, you've got Spike here as Lupin. Uh, uh, you have the the Jigen Spike, uh, Faye Fujiko, Jet. of course, and of course Jet, going yeah. on and Ed, of course, <laughs> of course, yeah, naturally. <laughs> yeah, he just happens to look like Captain Harlock, is all. Um. <laughs> uh, I guess for me, I'm, this is a cheat. I'm gonna say for the Lupin soundtrack clone, I'm gonna say Miko and Hachin. Oh, yeah, yeah Michiko nice. Hachin. Yep. Um, you know, yep. also uh, Sayo Yamamoto work mm-hmm. who then worked on the woman called Fujikamine. Yep. 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 For sure. 
And Watanabe himself has said many times that he watched, he was a big fan of Lupin, watched it when he was a kid. So no doubt a lot of that sort of idea permeates his stuff. And uh, since Yamamoto was like his understudy for a, for a lot of different things, then obviously the the sort of legacy continues to get passed on. Yeah, I mean, um, she even famously noted, like, she didn't really know a whole lot about Lupin, but she liked Fujiko, so she'll make a show about Fujiko. <laughs> Fair enough. And if she wants to do the same thing again, I'm all for it. She can she can keep doing Lupin. That'd be great. But um, I, I do wonder, I well, I do hope that, that like, I know, I know that she got a lot of more uh, name recognition because of things like Yuri on Ice. I hope that throughout her career that, like, her stuff continues to come out and is really good so that people will keep going back to Fushiko Mine. Yeah, I mean, that that is a show that, uh, unfortunately, I believe the license expired. I don't know if it's... It did. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you can easily see it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But then that's, uh, you know, yet another fine argument for uh, why you should uh, hoard physical media. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so at Fizz versus the World ask, what's your highest score in Cliffhanger? Uh, which Daryl sort of uh, mentioned earlier, but not by name. So can you explain what Cliffhanger was? Sure. Cliffhanger is actually one of the first, if not the first, like appearances of Loop on the Third Animation in the West. It was a coin-operated arcade video game that was a laser disc adventure title much like how dragon's lair or space ace uh were there were a series of these games um where you know it would play footage and then it would prompt the player to put in an input and if you put in the correct input it would continue and if you put in the wrong input you'd lose a life and so cliffhanger uh was footage taken from the action sequences primarily of not just the castle of cagliostro but also mystery amamo and so both of those things kind of made up cliffhanger and, you know, they dubbed it over themselves to, you know, sort of get whatever little incidental dialogue in there. And the thing about cliffhanger is unlike dragon's lair and spaces and what have you, the pattern for your player input is always exactly the same. And therefore you can go on YouTube and see people who like, either bought an arcade machine or figured out some way to like, you can't really easily emulate these laser disc things. Like, you know, maybe they got the laser disc for it. Um, you know, but they can like play through the whole game, like with their feet or, you know, with some sort of like yep. gimmick. Cause it's always the exact same inputs. If you memorize those inputs, you can beat the game. Uh, I never played hmm. cliffhanger or saw it, you know, out in the wild as a kid. Um, you know, I'd seen Dragon's Lair and stuff like that, but even as a kid, like those games were out of my reach because games, most games cost a quarter and Dragon's Lair would cost like 50 cents or 75 cents. And I'm like, forget it. And the people who play it would <laughs> lose all their lives instantly. And it's like, oh, it doesn't seem like it's worth it. Um, so my highest score in Cliffhanger is zero. Is it the Dark Souls of Lupin the Third Laserdisc video games? Well, um, I guess by default, since there aren't any other Lupin the Third Laserdisc video games, um, it, it is probably that. But yeah, I mean, you know, much like Dark Souls, these are games primarily of memorization uh, more than anything. <laughs> right. I mean, that's how that mind blown. That's how that uh, Namco Bandai game that somehow got released in the states is. It's very much a puzzle memorization game. All right, so Terrence comments. It's not really a question, but it sort of begs a question. Me in 1995, before watching Cagliostro. What's this Cagliostro thing? The Totoro guy did that? That film was sweet. Maybe this Miyazaki guy is all right. Me after Cagliostro. Miyazaki is a freaking genius. Even if Carl Masick changed some stuff. 
So which that begs the question, for Daryl, since this is a guy that seems to have watched it somewhat around the time that you did, uh, for you, how much of your early impressions of Miyazaki's work were shaped by how you thought about Cagliostro? So I think I'm, you know, the story never changes because I guess, um, you know, uh, I believe it was Tobias or Bill who said the same thing. Uh, maybe by the time I saw Cagliostro, I had seen other Miyazaki things. Um, oh, I see. Because okay. I, I I don't really remember the timeline. Like I know I got Nausicaa and Lapita and Kiki's Delivery Service and a subtitled Castle of Cagliostro. Um, I just don't remember if I saw a dub version of it first and then watched it in the Japanese or mm-hmm. if I saw the Japanese one and then watched the dub. But in general, I think my early impressions of Hayao Miyazaki was just the word of mouth being very strong. And then, like, I said, okay, well, I guess I go watch Nausicaa and then, you know, Lapita and stuff like that. And so by the time mm-hmm. I saw Cagliostro, I think I probably knew the score already as far as like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, Miyazaki's awesome. And this is just another one that's awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if, um, like, I just don't remember just because of the time frame. But it seems like uh, the way I got into things was a little backwards, um, mm-hmm. though, once again, like as I'm remembering, like I'm just trying to piece together my childhood at this point. Um, you know, I remembered being told on the internet, like, okay, Miyazaki's the master, and the hot thing at the time was Bubblegum Crisis. So it's like, you got to go see all Bubblegum <laughs> Crisis. And so when I found out that the comic shop, um, you know, had anime, the first thing I did was I rented all of Bubblegum Crisis um, and watched all of that. Um, and so I don't know if, um, you know, eventually afterwards I rented the Castle of Cagliostro from there because I did rent it from there eventually. But at some point I was also like getting the tapes. So, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like should have worn an asbestos suit versus like, once again, I've cut a worthless object. When I first heard should have worn an asbestos suit, it didn't strike me as wrong or it's like, what the heck mm-hmm. is that? So I must have seen the dub first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went and tracked down the, the subtitled copy. That's my own, like mm-hmm. my only guess, but like, yeah, I don't think it was my impressions of Hayao Miyazaki. I think it was set between all the discussion online being like, this is the greatest guy. And just having seen the other movies and being like, wow, the movies are really good. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that would make sense because you were sort of, you know, getting your, your influence from like an established community of people that already sort of knew the guy's work. Um, but like for me, for example, like whenever I was first introduced to Miyazaki, it was through Spirited Away. So like my frame of reference for his work was like, oh, Miyazaki, he's the Spirited Away guy. So I would watch the movies that I would approach afterwards with that frame of reference, not as like, I knew Miyazaki as a creator, but I just knew him as the guy that made Spirited Away. But, uh, it seems like since you didn't sort of come into Cagliostro blind, you, you wouldn't have that train of thought. Yeah, it sounds about right. Like, um... Because I don't think I would have like randomly picked up Cagliostro off the shelf had I not known mm-hmm. like, oh, this right. is Miyazaki, you know, who did this. I didn't think of it as like, oh, this is Lupin the Third, because what's Lupin the Third? I think that uh, as for uh, I think as for myself, if if I had seen Cast of Cagliostro instead of My Neighbor Totoro as my first Miyazaki film, I would probably be a better person today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't see My Neighbor Totoro for a while. And to be honest, like, I don't, like, hold up My Neighbor Totoro as, like, my favorite one or this all-time great masterpiece like most people do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, it's Totoro, but it's not like this movie that I'm like, I'm going to go back and rewatch Totoro. 
No, but like, that was my that was my first movie because it was it was on the news. Like Disney picked up the rights, I think, to distribute it. And it's like this is Japanese thing. It's by this guy. This you know, he's like the uh, you know Japanese Spielberg or whatever. And like I'm renting it and watching it, being really excited to watch this thing that everyone was talking about. And I didn't remember a single thing of it. The I'm hype- pretty sure I fell asleep <laughs> watching Totoro as well. The hype train killed it. Yeah, I just I just didn't want. Enjoy. I went back. I've of course gone back and seen it. Yeah, it's a fun kids movie, I guess. But uh, I, I think I would have enjoyed as a kid. Uh, I would have enjoyed Caliestro more. Bill, it's not the hype train. It's the hype cat bus. Get it right. <laughs> I thought one of that one. <laughs> All right. So the final question here is sort of a jokey one, and it's because uh, I posted this question in the vintage anime group, and just to get some feelers for some questions, and some some of the comments were just like, "Nice, I want to listen to that." I'm just like, "That's not a question." But anyway, uh, somebody asked, "Is this the same Surratt who used to be on IRC?" The answer is yes. I was on Fnet Pound Anime exclamation point, not to be confused with Pound Anime. Uh, and I was <laughs> a kid. I was a teenager, like 13, 14 or whatever, you know, maybe 15 or what, what have you. The point is that everyone else in that channel were like anime expo staffers or ASEN staffers who were all like, you know, dealing with their relationship drama and whatever. And a lot of times like they didn't have the patience for an annoying punk like me who was just like mm-hmm. spamming a bunch of non sequitur trash, AKA what I'm still doing to this day <laughs> at age 38. <laughs> Um, you know, but that being said, um, you know, I met some people in there who, you know, they said, Hey, I am the, at the secretary or what have you for the anime club right around where you live. And so I went over there and I was the youngest kid there. I was 16. Again, once I got my car, everyone else is in there, you know, mid twenties and above, I was the youngest person. Um, and now I'm the old, I'm too old to go to anime clubs at this point. I'm because I'm in my thirties <laughs> and you know, if I ever see, find one that's local and I show up there, I'm twice the age of everyone there. And it's like, okay, I can't be here. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, it, it's me. Uh, I, uh, you know, don't use IRC anymore because, uh, you know, people don't. And but at the same time, like my nick was just Surratt because I'm uncreative. Uh, and like, <laughs> you know, when there was a net split or something like that, I would be Surratt D. Um, when I'd go on forums and stuff, I, I just use my full name. I've always I've never had a pseudonym like everyone else, like Internet culture, like to say, like, oh, don't use your real name for anything. I always uh, like, you know, my last name was good enough. But nowadays it uh, is usually too short to uh, meet the username <laughs> right. requirement. Like it's only, you know, five characters or what have you. Um, Surratt Express 999. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it worked for miles, right? Um, yeah, true. But yeah, I mean, no, <laughs> it's 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 me, man. I mean, I, I don't know uh, necessarily everyone's real names from that channel. I just remember, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, are still around, um, you know, still being like interpreters or anime convention staff. Uh, a lot of them were like, um, you know, people. a lot of them are people I never met. Um, but you know, the few people I did, you know, they, they helped me out, uh, you know, and the, some of them I'm still in contact with to this day. Mm. Cool. That's awesome. I think, uh, to sort of like, like tangent off of that, I think it's kind of fascinating that like, oh, the way we've grown up with the internet, you know, with, with you kind of starting off, you know, the old 288 modem and logging into Usenet and then sort of shifting into IRC and then like meeting these people all across you know, the country of the world. And just like you said, just kind of this, this being a goofy kid. 14.4 modem, but yes. Oh, okay, right. Jeez. 
<laughs> but yeah, just kind of like evolving it like with that, and then being this kid, as being this, this goofy guy talking on the internet, but then evolving into like you know doing podcasts and writing and like you know being a part of the community and being an important part of the community. I, I just kind of seeing that evolve over time, and you know, you mentioned like in your thirties, like so am I at this point, and it's just it's kind of fascinating to look back at this, how we've changed you know in the culture itself you know now we're all on twitter uh, in the same way and being able to interact with these these big name fans or these these other people and sort of just be a part of this this evolution of anime fans well i don't I know if i'm part of the evolution like i think i stayed in the same spot as the 90s and like the rest of the world grew up because when i was you know of that age like part of the reason irc was a thing is because like i didn't know anime fans like there weren't anime fans for me to hang out with there weren't conventions for me to go to these like the online sphere was the only interaction i had with other anime fans and right now it's kind of the same deal like i can't like i'm not really going to you know like most anime like in-person fans are kids in high school kids in college or what have you uh i don't really like hang out with them like you know online is kind of where i am and so uh, other than conventions, because now there's conventions and even then at the convention, you know, I'm kind of the guy who's like, well, everyone else is doing this. Let me stick to what I'm doing, which is panels and people can show up to the panels if they want to. Um, but most people at conventions are, you know, half my age, if that, uh, you know, we're getting to the point where it's like a third of my age. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in that sense, Yes, everyone is more together now. Like I just grew up in the wrong time, right? Because everyone now is using the internet to get together and meet up and, you know, do what have you. I'm, you know, using the internet in much the similar way as I was using in in the 90s. Much faster download speeds, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, the internet as a whole, no matter what format we use, is still, I think, primary communication for a lot of these communities. I, I just think, like, our roles have kind of changed, and we've sort of grown up in some ways. Like, you've, you mentioned yourself, like, being surrounded by all these people that uh, know more and are actually involved in the actual community. But now, you like, you've gone on and sort of, you know, doing your podcast and the panels and whatnot. And I can kind of see the same thing with myself. Like, I remember my first my first con was AWA in 2004. Like, I remember going to your panel of doom back when it was stuffed in one of the smaller little rooms. And to see now, like, with us doing panels and us doing podcasts and be able to have you on, it's just kind of the circle of life uh, that I mentioned in one of my panel panels. It's just it's kind of crazy to see this and to have these people that are going to our panels for you know their first convention and to see where they're going to be in 10 years or so if they're still going to be going to these conventions. I, yeah. I would like to say I, I planned my schedule around going to a lot more panels at AWA and a lot of them were your guys' panels and then each time I'd show up and be turned away because the room was full and they put you in like these tiniest rooms imaginable. Meanwhile, yep. the video rooms yeah. are large, empty rooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yep. Well, we appreciate your attempts, so we thank you for that. And, um, well, I guess that that sort of brings us to the end of our episode. And uh, unless anybody else has any final thoughts that they want to throw out there. Well, now has never been a better time to get into Loop on the 3rd. You no longer need to send away for tapes. You no longer need to know a guy. You no longer need to wait for midnight on a weekend or whatever it is that, you know, the time when Loop on the 3rd was on. Like you said, if you've got Crunchyroll, and you probably do, it's the exact same site that all the favorite shows that you're watching on now are on. You can just type Lupin into that and you'll get a whole variety of stuff. Plus the discotheque releases, which are really 
good quality stuff even when the film itself is of you know not the best quality you know there's a lot of times good extras and things like that on there you know you really got to give it to reed nelson and brady and you know uh really want to say like yeah that that community of dedicated loop on the third fans is you know out there and doing the work um so yeah i mean just 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 jump in man you know just pick a spot see what looks interesting if you think it's bad uh you know just pick something else that's a different style and you know you're probably likely to find at least some take on loop on the third that you will like <laughs> and i can almost guarantee you that castle of cagliostro will be one of them and it's on netflix <laughs> that also helps uh with i think the streamlined dub uh, I don't think the streamlined dub is the one that's on Netflix. I'm 90% sure that it would be the manga anime's dub. I don't think they would pick well, the streamlined Last time I checked, one. it was the streamlined dub, but maybe I was in a fog when watching it. I'll have to double check. I just wanted to give a shout out to um, go check out or go buy the Cascagliostra Blu-ray. They put so much work into that where there's um, – they got high-res print versions of um, art books and concept art and basically put as much as they could on that Blu-ray where if you want to relive the 1980s subtitles, you can do that on that Blu-ray. Uh, <laughs> when, when we say 1980s subtitles, what we mean is when TMS went to the CFO and they showed the one at Worldcon and you know they had like some film festival and stuff, that's a subtitle one because Streamline never released a subtitled one. Um, mm. But that said, yeah, that discotheque release is the definitive release. It's really inexpensive. As I check on Amazon, it is $15. So ah, such a steal. It's uh, really, really good stuff. Everyone really broke their back, making it the best possible release that they could. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely, if you want to experience the film, there's no better way than that discotheque Blu-ray. Yeah, mm-hmm. discotheque does great stuff like... Uh, Daryl, uh, thanks to you, I was able to get through Napoleon's Dictionary <laughs> with your commentary. <laughs> That's that, right. It's not a very good special, but Mike Toole and I have a pretty good commentary track, I think. It, 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 with, that movie was a slog, but your commentary helped me get through it. <laughs> right. That, that would be like an example of like one of those early 90s ones where it's like, okay, well, they're just kind of succumb to a formula at this point. Um, and yeah, as we talked about in the commentary track for that, you know, that one had some other production related issues and just due to the fact of that being turned around in such a short time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, no discotheque is, uh, is the company for releasing all Lupons great and small. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our show. And so thank you very much, Daryl, for coming on the show. It was a great time. Really appreciate it. No problem. I'll be glad to, you know, be dragged into this, you know, whenever you see fit, though, as I look at the recording time, as is the case, whenever I'm a guest on somebody's show, it's gone on probably about two to three times longer than you were expecting. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. You know, people, people still seem to listen anyway. So I guess that's cool. And uh, yeah. So that's awesome. But thank you again. Where can people connect with you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at D-A-R-Y-L-S-U-R-A-T. Just my name. Again, I'm very unoriginal. We also have a Twitter account for the Anime World Order podcast at Anime World Order. But that one is mostly just uh, an automated one to post when new episodes are out. If you aren't subscribed to the feed, um, it's over at www.animeworldorder.com or iTunes or, you know, Stitcher or wherever. No, I don't think we're on Stitcher. Um, 
No, we are on Stitcher. We're not on Spotify. Okay, yeah. But, um... Yeah, Spotify's got a weird thing where you have to own all the music in your podcast to be able to put it up there. Right, and we don't own anything. And so we were like, we're not going to risk, you know, being banned. Because it's like, if you get banned from Spotify, you also get banned from your hosting. It's something ridiculous. Um, Ooh, that's really hard. You can't just go to their website and apply to be on Spotify. You have to do it through your podcast host or something weird like that. Um, But yeah, we're not on Spotify. And Bill, where can people talk to you about Loop on the Third on social media? Um, You can talk to me at a very uh, original name, uh, WB Foreman. F O R E M A N 999 on Twitter, where I will talk about Lupin all the time, Hearthstone all the time, and One Piece all the time. What about you, Tobias? Uh, you all can harass me for being on a Lupin podcast and not seeing any Lupin uh, on Twitter at Reverend underscore Tobias. And you can get spammed with any and all Kingdom Hearts 3 related news for the next couple of months and way back into the past by following me at Bebop Shock. And that's Bebop as in Cowboy Bebop and Shock as in Bioshock or You Are Shock or whatever it is that you want to get shocked with. And you can find all the Third Impact anime related things over at thirdimpactanime.wordpress.com or facebook.com slash thirdimpactanime. You can also find our podcast on pretty much anywhere. We're on uh, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and our main host is Podbean, and that's probably the best one, at least I think. Podbean has a really good app if you guys have not have not checked that out. But anyway, thank you again, Daryl, and thank you, Bill, and thank you, Tobias, uh, for being on the show. And we guys, we will see you guys on the next one. Thank you.